Welcome to another episode of Forty Two to Doomsday, where Mark and I are joined by our very good friends Richard and Dave. We will be talking about Doctor Who, and hopefully, by the end of the episode, we'll have each awarded each other an OBE because apparently they're giving them out like confetti at a wedding. <laughs> As I said before, we've got our good friends uh, Richard and Dave here. Now, uh, welcome, boys. Hello. How are you? Hello. Before we uh, we get into the meat of the uh, episode, why don't you lay out your fan credentials? I think we'll start with Dave because he's hosting tonight. Well, only only so far as it's physically my apartment. I think Let's you're see. you're still running the show here, Rob. So we are unplugged. Okay. Let the white ending commence. My fan credentials. Well, I started off watching the show on my father's knee when I was very young. I uh, grew up with the ABC repeats and the JNT years. I joined the local club for a time, wrote for the fanzine for a time, and then when it was clear that the show wasn't coming back, or so we thought in the late 90s, moved on in my life. I uh, got back involved in the 50th anniversary, but I've, I've constantly watched the show, and now that podcasts are around, it's been a new way to get into the show without having to actually, you know, do anything other than listen. So, yeah, I've been around fandom my whole life, one way or another. Very good. And uh, during the, the 90s, you were heavily involved in the organisation and running of a of a um, of a convention here in Victoria. Uh, yes, well, Richard could probably talk more about that because he was the um, the head hodge show of that. But yes, we put together a convention and a few other local events and put together our fanzines and yes, did what did. I think most clubs around the country, well, around the world, did at that time, mm-hmm. um, and probably no longer do because it's all professional these days. It's all for the money, isn't it? It is all. For, we were doing it for love, but now it's all done for the money. But they can get away with it because people like the four of us pay them the money. So. That's right. And uh, Richard, your uh, your fan credentials. My fan credentials. Um, Well, I must admit again, grew up watching the show. I first discovered it, and it shows how old I'm getting. I discovered it in the mid '70s, and then watched pretty much right until the end of the uh, end of the original series, and then uh, finding myself at something of a loss. Then decided to join fandom um, after having sort of been on the fringes of fandom for a number of years, and uh, ran or oversaw. Uh, the club here in Victoria for for a period of time, number of years, um, which included yes a couple of um, a couple of convention type events, and probably the big one was was a thing called Time Storm, uh, where we did a full weekend convention with uh, Sophie Aldred as our guest, which I, well I thought went quite well. Um, oh, it's definitely the best convention I've ever attended. Sharks. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody forgets the Enlightenment Convention of 1991. That was a nice one too. I actually yeah. didn't go to that, so Did I can't, oh, I can't okay. really talk to Enlightenment because uh, I, I, uh, I didn't go because the time the I wasn't around in I, I, I was there. I was overawed in the presence of Dudley Simpson. Dudley Simpson. We had Robert Jewell. You did. And we and had... Alexandra Tynan or Sandra Reid, whatever name she was going by. Cybermum. The Cybermum. Cybermum. Yes, I remember that well. What does she have two different names for? Uh, Tax reasons. <laughs> one, one Allegedly. Is it, Allegedly. Uh, Reed versus Tynan is her married name, yes. uh, as opposed to her uh, maiden name. Mm. And I think Sandra is just a shortened version of Alexandra, rather mm. than, as opposed to Alex. Thanks, mate. Because well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually know the truth. But I know, yes, yeah, her maiden name is Reed, her married name is Tynan. Oh, lovely. So there you go. And yeah, we got out of fandom uh, probably around the early 2000s and then spent a period out. And yes, around the 50th anniversary, decided to come back and have another show uh, at running the club again. And we gave that 18 months and the 50th anniversary seemed a good point to hand over. Uh, so we went away and look, the club's continued on. They've got a, a, a committee going at the moment and they seem to be doing quite well. But yeah, look, I've been a fan 
pretty much, uh, well, over 40 years now. When you came back to the club in for before the 50th anniversary to when you left, what were the differences that you saw in the club? Well, one, one thing I can certainly point to is that when we did it the first time around, there was clearly only the classic series and the new adventures were coming out of that stage. So it was very, very simple. The big problem we found when we came back to it was you had some people who were fans of the whole series, some people who were only classic series fans, some people who were only new series fans, and trying to put on events or meetings or write fanzines for what actually was now a very disparate group of people actually was quite tough, mm. particularly as we, I think, fairly obvious to say, skewed more towards the classic series. We still watch the new series, but um, we probably weren't the people to drive a, a club for diehard fans of Stephen Moffat. Much the same for me. I, I think when we did... I mean, in some ways, look, I probably wish I knew then what I know now. I probably would have run the club differently, I think, back in the 90s, having had the uh, experience of having run it before when I came back, if you can make sense of that. It's all in the edit. Yeah, all in the edit. <laughs> Timey-wimey. But, yeah, I think that that probably was the thing, because, look, Dave and I are both... I mean, I like the new series, and, and uh, I've enjoyed quite a bit of it. I don't have the same emotional attachment to it yeah, that I have to the classic right. series. I think that the stuff we were doing probably was classic series skewed, or classic series centric. But having said that, there are a lot of long-term members in there who probably are the same or who want to talk about the classic series and probably don't want to talk about how cute Matt Smith is or how much they love David Tennant. So, and that was a bit of an issue for us. And of course, the one really unfortunate piece of timing was the meeting in the 50th anniversary. We said we we're going to dedicate completely and utterly to new Doctor Who. It was two days after yes. they discovered and released Web of Fear and Enemy of the World. So the new series kind of went out the window that day. <laughs> but it did. But then again, when we said to the people in the room, look, what do you want to do? We've, we've got the new episodes. Do you want to have a look at some of them? Or it was overwhelmingly they wanted to watch the, the black and white stuff. Absolutely. So we've all watched Doctor Who. You know, it's ranging from 30 to 40 years. Does anyone, anyone can go, uh, can they explain why they still have this attachment to a show that uh, they started watching when they were kids? I think part of it is because when Doctor Who is good, it is very, very good. And that's the same with all the shows that are on my DVD shelf, whether it's sci-fi like Blake 7 and Babylon 5 or Firefly, or other series that I have up there like Rumpole, Brideshead Revisited, I, Claudius. They're all series that are so well written that like a good book, you can pick it up once every couple of years and watch it again. Uh, with Doctor Who, there's obviously some stuff that isn't that good, but your love of the good stuff carries you through the bad stuff. And I guess there's also that emotional attachment that you have as, you know, it was it's part of your childhood, so you do enjoy going up back. But I think it is a genuinely well-written show at its best. And certainly the years that I like most are, I think, very well written. Because unlike uh, Mark and Richard and I, you sort of came to the show a little bit later than all three of us. Yes. And you, I mean, you grew up with the, the, the J&T era. Yes. Is your love of the show or your attachment from that era or going back to the 60s and 70s episodes? Absolutely not. My, my favourite era of the show is absolutely the 60s, particularly the Hartnell era. As a child, my favourite era was the Pertwee era. And that, I think, came from the repeats that we had in Australia fairly regularly. Um, but as an adult now, without doubt, the 60s is by far my favourite era of the show. And I'm probably quite rare in that respect, I think, in fandom. Mm. And in a nutshell, what is it about the 60s that you enjoy more than, say, you know, the, the 70s or the it, 80s? It's, it's what I feel is the depth of the, the stories there. This is a time, I think, when people were writing not so much just for television. They were writing as if it was a play or a drama or, or a novel. And it, the stories are very, very well written. I think you look at some of the companions and the actors, you know, whether it's William Russell... 
um, Jacqueline Hill, Maureen O'Brien, I think he's very underrated. You've got wonderful performances, some great companions that I think haven't been bettered, and stories that are very mature and intellectual, and, and in some cases, actually, some of the nastiest stuff in Doctor Who, the more adult stuff in Doctor Who, comes in the Hartnell era. And so I just find them very well written by quite eminent professional writers. And as I say, most of my um, TV watching actually reflects that. I far, far prefer TV of that era generally, and so I prefer Doctor Who of that era generally, but I love those stories, particularly the historicals, which makes me even rarer. Mm. Mm, very much so. Richard? I'm probably a little more traditional in that, that Tom Baker was the Doctor I grew up with, and, and look, he's uh, he's far away my favourite Doctor, because I think for me, probably growing up, and, and I think thanks to the um, almost unlimited repeats we had here in Australia, he was Doctor Who as far as I was concerned, and I, I sort of, I mean, you saw Pertwee when they repeated, they had, uh, I think, a group of about six or seven Pertwees that they used to have on, on rotation, but they were obviously the only ones they had in colour. And, and I went years before I even saw the black and white ones. Having said that, Hartnell and Troughton probably would be my next two favourites, I, I think. And again, probably much like Dave Hartnell particularly. And, and if we're talking about missing stuff, I think we might get to later. It's actually, I'm more interested probably in finding later Hartnells probably than finding any of the Troughton stuff. But, with, with the exception of Parent Evil, which I've written off. But, yes. But yeah, I'd love to find some of those later Hartnells. So for me, I guess it was always, you know, Tom Baker was, was sort of the... <laughs> he was the man. And I actually remember when he... Uh, when Peter Davison started, I actually initially didn't really take to, to Davo um, all that much because, and then again, after they showed season 19, they then immediately went into this massive big run of Tom Baker repeats again. So I was like, cool, more Tom Baker. But um, that's, I mean, you think you change over time. Uh, I mean, Davison of the Doctors I've watched uh, on video, I've actually come to appreciate him a lot more. Mm. Um, having watched him back. Is that uh, Davison the actor or his episodes? Probably Davison the doctor or Davison the actor. Yep. Um, I think there is an awful lot of subtlety to his performance. That I, I must admit, I probably didn't get when I was about 12 or 13 and, you know, um, just I knew he was the bloke off, um, off All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a heavy nostalgia aspect to it as well. I mean, there's that sort of thing people uh, have their childhood and then spend the rest of their lives probably trying to regain a lot of their childhood. Mm. And I, I suspect that's probably part of it as well. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, one of my all-time favourite Doctor Who stories is, is Pyramids of Mars. And the reason I like Pyramids of Mars is because it was probably the story that turned me into it from, from someone who watched the show into an out-and-out fan. Because um, it moved to the weeknights with season 13 here. And I, I watched um, Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Planet of Evil. But Pyramids of Mars was the first story I remember absolutely just blowing me away. And just thinking, this is great, um, and yeah, that that really set me on the way. Just to take a step back, then, so that not that love of the show, you both served on the executive with the club. What were you hope? I mean, what were you hoping to you know give? Why did you want to be involved in running the club uh, with amongst other fans, uh, Dave? Well, no, and, and to preface that, you came back and you were the club president uh, during the 50th anniversary that's right. celebration. Yes. So you had seen Richard as club president uh, eternal for quite a long time <laughs> uh, during yes. the 90s we all had and uh, Richard s- did a very good s- job served as his loyal vice president for a couple of years exactly ago. so I mean what were you what, what did you come back and and, uh, and run the club very much it was a nostalgia thing um, Richard got in touch with me and told me frankly the state that it was in and we both felt it would be very very sad if Doctor Who had survived so successfully to 50 years and our local club wasn't there so we said no matter what we will have a strong fandom presence in in our area in the 50th anniversary and hopefully we will do a good enough job it gives it some momentum that those fans of the new series can take it on and continue with it and so it was it was very much just you know i 
I had some really fun years in fandom back in the 90s with some you know, really good people who are, I mean, the fact we're all sitting here together says that we're obviously fairly good mates. But, you know, particularly in the 90s, you guys would remember just as well, you couldn't go to work or go to uni or whatever and talk about Doctor Who or Blake Seven or mm. fandom, you know, or, or even, you know, various genre movies. If you wanted to do that, you had to go and find other people and there wasn't even much internet in those days. So the ability to just rock up and chat about that particular genre of television was, was great fun. And you know, I met some good people, and yeah, that that affection brought me back in the 50th anniversary. Okay, and Richard, because you you were heavily involved in the 90s. I mean, not I only were he, running the club, but you were the merchandising maestro as well. I was. He, he was Victorian Doctor Who in the 90s. How I did mean, you keep that momentum going? I, well, I originally got involved actually because I was really looking for something, almost in a way, looking for something to do. Because I I well I'd had because I I sort of um, I was in my early 20s and I. I Sort of left school and gone out, you know, gone out and got first job and whatever, um, and first car, first girlfriend, that sort of a serious girlfriend and whatever, and it sort of really um, drifted away from the show probably around the time it finished, um, and in the very early nineties. But of course, um, I was in the army reserve and I stuffed my knee up, and then I broke up with my girlfriend and whatever, and I was actually looking for something to do, and it was at, it was the tomb of the Cybermen uh, when it was found. Yeah. Um, was sort of like, oh, cool, actually. That was one book I really enjoyed, remember, I really remember enjoying reading. So I went along to the meeting and I got talking to a couple of people there and I thought, actually, this seems okay. So I went to a couple more meetings. And then the committee at the time, uh, which was your committee, uh, Marcus, yes. was, uh, <laughs> yeah, got up on mass and said, well, we're going. Um, I think it was a bit more eloquent than that. It was like, screw you guys, we're going home. Or, <laughs> <laughs> I, I seem to remember it was actually, well, we're all leaving at the end of the year, so if you want the club to keep going, you better get a new committee. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much what it yes, was. Yes, no, I was at that meeting. I can verify that's yeah. exactly what it was. I put my name forward for the committee, and I did uh, a year as vice president, um, and then took over the club at the end of that year and, and sort of snowballed from there. We, we went had some peaks and troughs. I mean, we went... Uh, because that was around the time of the first rumours that there was something happening with it, which ultimately became the telly movie. So we had a bit of an upswing there, and that was a really positive time. We got some, we had some guests, we had a few events. The last couple of years I there were probably weren't quite as good. No, I, I seem to watch. I remember quite vividly once the telly movie happened, there was a real feeling. I don't know if this was around the world, but certainly in local fandom, that that was it. Doctor Who had had its comeback. It had failed, and and that was the end. I genuinely never thought we'd see Doctor Who again. It had its shot. It didn't work. No, and, and uh, but, so they were a bit of a downward time. But then, like all things, I mean, I realised I probably stayed a bit long and it was time to step away. So, and, and we pretty much disappeared from fandom for a good, well, probably 10, 12 years. Yes. Really. I mean, yes. I, I sort of talked to a few people occasionally and went to the occasional meeting. But um, you uh, you still get together with the uh, retired presidents of Victoria. Uh, oh, I do occasionally. Yeah, it's, it's actually not a like a DWCVRSL. It's just I'm still in touch with some people. And yeah, it's sort of, unfortunately, they're obviously people who've made friends through the club. And, and that's how they, you know, that's just a social group, I guess. Is it, is it like a meeting of the Illuminati? No. Uh, well, I mean, if, if it is, would you tell us? <laughs> well, I guess you want to talk about Mr. Black. <laughs> yes. Now we're going to listen to Mr. Black. Um, but uh, and then I got, uh, I went to a couple of meetings, and and the club, without pussyfooting around, I mean, the club was in a pretty poor state around a couple of years before the anniversary. And I got involved because they needed a treasurer and, and uh, didn't have one, so I sort of said, well, look, I'll do your books. And then sort of got more and more involved and realised 
probably just just how dire state the club was in. Uh, and without, you know, I mean, they, they were having a lot of trouble getting the magazine out on time. They were having bad at poor attendances at meetings. The membership was was twenty bucks for very little. So quite clearly, when when the some of the committee at, at, at that time decided they again they were going to move on. So I thought, well, this is probably a chance to maybe do a bit of reinvention. And and after talking to Dave and a couple of others, we sort of decided, well, look, it would be very sad if the club was in such a pathetic state coming into the 50th anniversary. So we gave ourselves 18 months, really, to, to try and get things back on track, which was, you know, get the magazine out regularly, try and do something inventive at meeting. Look, that didn't always work, but um, Sonic always came out on time. But, uh, it was a very professional-looking uh, publication. Thank you. Both of you. I mean, Apple, I was Apple, there. Apple products. <laughs> no, but, I mean, it was. I mean, it was, you know, full, the last one that went out was full colour and it was quite, you know, quite heavy and, uh, and uh, voluminous in terms of the writing. Oh, that, that last one, yeah, that, uh, that, that was a little, probably a little too ambitious, <laughs> perhaps that final but, but, but it was a reflection of the fact that I think for both of us, having been out of fandom for so long, we had stuff we wanted to say. So for me, you know, writing a feature-length article every fanzine every couple of months wasn't a chore because I had all these thoughts about particularly the new series and who bottled up and suddenly a chance to express them. Not not to an audience as wide as the 42 to Doomsday audience, but, but you know, I enjoyed that. Yeah, and look, uh, we, we had some good stuff in Sonic. I mean, Sonic particularly, I mean, I used to bitch and moan every week, you know, every couple of weeks, oh, God, I've got to sit down and do more bloody work on Sonic and I'd have to block out weekends, you know, weeks in advance because it's Sonic weekend and stuff. But actually, thinking back on it now, Sonic actually was probably the part of it I enjoyed the most. Mm. Um, I think much of all I enjoyed doing the club meetings but um, I, I think once we sort of got to the idea well, it's nearly 50th anniversary and we're going to go um, I think the club meetings sort of started losing a bit of their luster because we knew we weren't going to be around longer term so that was sort of time to walk away but uh, I, in some ways I could have quite happily continued doing something so before <laughs> we move on to other topics your, your involvement in fandom in Victoria obviously positive would you say David? Yes Richard? Yes most definitely The news that Osgood, the character of Osgood, the not late lamented Osgood, uh, coming back to the new series of Doctor Who, uh, brought uh, some thoughts to my mind. One uh, being the inability of the show to actually kill anyone off. Dave, any thoughts about Osgood coming back and what it actually says about the new series today? Yeah, I, thanks, Rob. That really, it was something that I thought about as well because one of the genuine criticisms I have of the new series is that I think it lacks any sense of dramatic tension in that you. Anytime somebody dies, it lacks any real emotional punch because you just assume they're going to be brought back to life or even if they go, this is supposed to be the last time we'll ever see them, you know they're going to come back. And I contrast except, that... Except for Amy and Rory, who've probably got the most plausible excuse where you could get them back, but they're gone. That's, that, they, they that's exactly right. Back. That's exactly right. All the Doctor needed to say was, okay, Amy, Rory's back there. I'll give you a few US dollars. I can't travel back to New York, so meet me at the Washington Monument on New Year's Eve. I'll see you soon. Catch the bus. Catch the bus. So that, that was all that ended to do. But, you know, you think about it, Rose was meant to be locked away in another dimension. Um, what's her name? Catherine Tate, um, Donna. She was meant to be, you know, if she ever saw the Doctor again, she'd blow up. Well, she didn't. Rose came back. And I can contra contrast that to, you know, how I felt growing up watching Adric die. Or when you saw, you know, the end of The Hand of Fear where um, Sarah leaves, Susan's departure in Dalek Invasion of Earth, they're really emotional moments. And yet you've got someone like Rory who was killed more often than Kenny, but he's, but he's back the next episode. And so if somebody does die, like so Osgood dying in um, the episode that shall not be named, mm. who cares? Because 
one way or another, she's going to be back. So who cares? The classic series isn't entirely not guilty on this because remember Trial of a Time Lord where they killed Perry off and all of a sudden in part 13 she was living a happy yeah, and yes, a and lovely the, and, and life for the, with King Yakar. And for the next 20 years, fandom absolutely decried that as one of the worst mistakes J&T ever made. And yet it, the new series doesn't. So and I think this is a really interesting contrast. I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago. That whereas the classic series was, you know, quite violent, people died, people were killed off, um, all that sort of thing, but it was incredibly platonic. Like even something like Joe and Cliff Jones, they fell in love at an intellectual level. There was no sense that he was about to, you know, take her pants off or anything. Well, he was. The doctor just came in and cock blocked them. No, all but the way through them. <laughs> look, you, you, you can read that into it, but but even then, it's it's Joe falling in love with you know a younger version of the doctor. Well, that's and, what I read into it. There's that scene where they're sitting in front of the fire, and the doctor clearly comes in and goes, "Now come on, come away and talk to me." But, yeah, yeah, but if, oh, look, I don't disagree. But even the way that it was filmed, you felt that Cliff Jones was going to come in and read and talk to her about yeah, the Amazon, no, right. not that he was about to you know have have a, have a go at it. So. You contrast that, though, with the new series where clearly it's... One of the companions got pregnant on the TARDIS, so we can be fairly open. There is clearly a sexuality involved in the new series, but it's incredibly tame. Well, very they, few people get killed. skirting jokes. They do, well, that's exactly right. So that is very clearly a go area for the new series, but violence very much is, and people don't get killed. Um, even one of the... I think one of the rare occasions that quite shocked me at the time was in The Stolen Earth, where the Daleks are taking over the Earth, and that father comes out with his wife and kid and says, you know, we're not going with you, we're going back inside, get stuffed. And then the Daleks go and blow their house up and kill the family. Now, in the old series, they probably would have just done it actually on the street. They had to send them inside to do it. But that was a rare example of an actually quite violent and nasty thing in the new series. So there's sort of this inversion between the two, with the exception of the Hartnell era, where it was just sex and violence gone nuts across, like, <laughs> across the whole thing. But it, I, I, I think, the Romans. But I guess that's a reflection of television today. I mean, any drama today is a lot less violent and a lot more sexual and Doctor Who's just reflecting that I guess but that's what Osgood's coming back mean for me it's just another well you'd want to have this big moment of wow this character that apparently many fans relate to was murdered by someone pretending to be the master and who cares she's back so what so what does it say about the approach then that say Stephen Moffat has taken the last few years I think he's just reflecting modern audiences as tempting as it would be to you know stick the knife into Moffat I think he's just doing what a lot of TV shows mm. do now that's that's television now it's very friendly it's very warm and fuzzy it's very relatable and if you want really dark and nasty stuff you need to go to somewhere like HBO on subscription Moffat's just doing what sells and this clearly sells and Big Finish are guilty of the same thing now they've brought back Adric Sarah Kingdom Pertwee uh, Ben Jackson Hartnell. yeah so They've recast, so... Is it just a Doctor Who thing? Um, I think that it is... There are elements of fandom that enjoy it, and clearly it works. Um, it doesn't work for me, so it's mm. not a universal thing. But, you know, Big Finish is a commercial organisation, so clearly there is a market. Mm. comes down to market. That's market exactly, that's exactly yeah, right. And, and, you know, for Doctor Who to be now be made the way I would like, to, like it made, which is, you know, some combination of the Hartnell era and Season 7... It would rate about 2 million viewers, if that. Mm. So I, I can see that Doctor Who, the way I want it to be, would not be successful, and Doctor Who should be successful. And I don't dislike the new series. There's a lot of episodes I really enjoy. Listen, I thought, was one of the best episodes in, in years. Mm. Human Nature was great. Blink was great. The Empty Child was great. There's a lot of really, really good episodes. But overall, the tone, I find, is very soft. It's very fan-friendly. It's, it's like, you know, you wouldn't make Bride's Head Revisited today and get 10 million viewers. You make Downtown Abbey and get 10 million viewers, but that's basically Neighbours 100 years ago. Mm. It's, it's a soap with, you know, ye olde clothes. And the same plot. But it rates. Mm. But it works. So if in 1980 Brideshead Revisited rated, great. 
I love that. Now, Downtown Abbey, right? Did you know for three years I thought Downtown Abbey was set in New York? <laughs> How did you get that? Well, because it's called Downtown Abbey. And, I, and Downtown... Down, down, downtown. Downtown. Well, downtown. I didn't know that. Or <laughs> <laughs> you look at it, it is downtown if you look at it on the printed page. Yeah, so. but I never had need to. So people just talk about this Downtown Abbey. I thought it was filmed in Downtown New York. So that's how, that's how little interest I had in it. Um, but that is an aside. Downtown Abbey, or Downtown Abbey is what rates now. That is what te- that is what television is now. Doctor Who to be successful needs to appeal to that mass audience, and that's not necessarily where I'm. I look, I can often fit into it, but television has changed. The Hartnell era would not be made today. I mean, the great thing about Doctor Who is you get something new every week. I mean, Downton Abbey last season, I believe the ratings were starting to slide because it's the same formula, same yes. the same themes being regurgitated again. At least Doctor Who's keeping it fresh every week. A new story, didn't like last week's, which invariably, sometimes we, most of the time we don't. There's always something new coming. coming <laughs> no, 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 you're absolutely right. I, I mean, look, I'm I'm very open. I did not enjoy the Matt Smith era. Um, I think he was a great actor. I didn't enjoy his era, but I knew that if I stuck with it, mm. there would be another era soon. And it was the Peter they Capaldi. They have to change Doctors eventually. They have to change Doctors eventually, and <laughs> they did it with Peter Capaldi. And I really enjoyed Series Eight. So yeah, Doctor Who does have that sense that there will always be something new and fresh around the corner, and that that kind of keeps you involved. Richard. Well, what do you think about the approach the modern series takes these days? I mean, is it the same as Dave? Or? I, I'm, I'm going to make a big confession and say I haven't actually watched all of season eight, so I can't really comment on that. No, I don't have, as I said earlier, I don't have the same emotional attachment to the new series. But I, I acknowledge, look, it's um, look, it's not made for me. Doctor Who, I mean, I'm a 40-something-year-old fanboy, so, um, you know, who likes watching stuff like Pyramids of Mars and Horror of Fang Rock? And... That Doctor Who doesn't exist anymore, and it's not made for me. Um, so, like Dave said, there are episodes I can sit there and go, that was actually pretty cool, and I really enjoy that. I don't get a lot out of the big squee moments, um, or, you know, the Doctor being doing Doctorish stuff, because, for me, I preferred it when it was just a bloke roaming the universe just getting into adventures. From that perspective, um, overall, look, I'm happy, you know, look, I'm really happy the show came back. I've enjoyed quite a lot of it. My favourite Doctor of, of the new ones is probably Christopher Eccleston, I think. I, I'd be honest and say I wasn't a massive David Tennant fan. Um, I liked Matt Smith. I didn't particularly enjoy his era. Um, and Capaldi... In some ways, Capaldi was probably a bit sport for me because I acquired uh, the Camargo uh-huh. versions, um, which in some ways probably spoiled it for me because I watched... Because I, I was initially only going to watch Deep Breath just so I could say I'd actually seen and see what he was like. But then I drifted into Into the Dalek, and I didn't particularly like Into the Dalek, and he and that was actually just downright unlikable. That's very true. Um, I, I was put off by that one as well. Yeah, I actually watched that, and I thought, oh, this is what it's going to be like. I don't know that I'm going to get into this. But I watched the next three. Time Heist was a bit unusual, because that was a lot of blue screen. <laughs> <laughs> so Time, Time Heist didn't actually make a lot of sense until I read the script. Yeah, I, I don't know. I will catch up with season eight at some point. So where did you stop? I watched, I've only watched the first five. Um, I watched the, as I said, I watched the leak versions for the first five, and I watched the first four on TV. So I watched up to listen. Okay, so and I really enjoyed done? listen. Yeah. Um, so I've got the whole second half of the series to watch. Okay. Don't feel the the need to watch it yet. No, no, I've got other stuff. I mean, I was going to sit down and watch it, and then Better Call Saul came on. So. Oh yeah. Um, yeah okay. So I I immediately leapt on that because I love Breaking Bad. Mm. Um, I've been watching a lot of the other current stuff around. Like I've just started on Daredevil and whatever. I'll catch up with, with, with Series 8 eventually. Can I just expand on a point or jump off a point that Richard made um, about it not being made for us? I, I remember quite vividly when the first series came out under Christopher Eccleston, who, who I agree is my favourite of the new Doctors. After about 
three episodes of that, I was sort of going, I'm not quite, quite sure where this is going. Mm. It's been really, very well done. Then they did the two-part Slovene one. And at the end of that, after five episodes, I was fairly philosophical about the show. I just said, look, I don't think this is being made for me. That's okay. I'm sure a younger generation will really love it. And I was very philosophical. I didn't feel owed anything. Fortunately, then we had Dalek, then we had Father's Day, the long game, and you know that second half of the season. And I absolutely fell in love with the doc- with that season. Then um, the cliffhanger at the end of um, uh, Bad Wolf, just absolutely. I, I was on tenterhooks for seven days, like I haven't been in TV for a long time by that. So, but the point is, after five episodes, I was quite happy to walk away, going, "This has been made for someone else." Just like the Sarah Jane Adventures, I watched a couple and I've gone, "Look, if I was ten again, I would love this show." But I'm not ten; it's not being made for me. And I was quite happy to walk away and let another audience enjoy it. Can I just pick up something that you said before, where you said your favourite era is Hartnell and Season 7. Are we getting any of that with Capaldi at the moment? I mean, in terms of his performance and, say, the tenor of the stories? I think we're definitely getting it with his performance. I think the reality is that a 42-minute story can never have the plot depth and the characterisation that, you know... A seven-part or a six-part story can have. I mean, my favourite story in Fifty Years is the Solarians. That seven episodes that you know the plot changes, the plot twists, um, the characters really develop over time. You re- you know you really feel at the, at the end of it as though you know those characters um, as well written as any Doctor Who can be. And look, there are very well written stories. In forty-two minutes, you can't have that, and and I I miss that. But I again go back to the point: would an audience turn up over seven weeks to watch one story? I'm not sure an audience today would do that. I was just going to say, I mean, we, Richard mentioned before Daredevil, which is... I mean, modern television is very arc-heavy, as, as we all know. Yes. Would Doctor Who work like that today? It would, but it wouldn't get 10 million viewers. I mean, Daredevil's a subscription series, isn't it? Mm. it so it is. so you, you, you've therefore got the buy-in. Um, you're not a casual viewer, which is a very good market for shows that I think people like us watch. But I guess in some ways, Doctor Who is probably kind of hard to do an arc with because it's a time travel show, so you don't have a set... A defined universe. I mean, Doctor Who, you can go anywhere, anytime, do anything. So unless you have a big, something like, say, the Time War, or you have a rogue rogue Time Lords that you're sniffing out or chasing or doing something with, it's very hard to do a massive arc unless you just do character development type stuff. Because how do you tell a story across four dimensions or five dimensions? Really, I mean, if you look at a story like Daredevil or even something like The Flash, you've got a defined universe there. You've got a defined lot of characters. The characters stay in the same spot and they interact with the world around them. Whereas with Doctor Who, where you change world every week, that's a very hard arc. I would think it would be hard to, to, to put a, a firm, long-range arc over that sort of format. So in that sense, then, would you say in Series 8 that instead of a story arc per se, you had a character arc well, between the, the Doctor's relationship with... You, you've um, probably got to do it as a character arc rather than a big story arc with big story revelations, unless you suddenly find out the Doctor's Mr. Mysterious and you suddenly yeah. find something out about him. But then do we find that approach in terms of concentrating on character and emotion uh, as effective as a story that we can follow from beginning to end? I don't think it's an either-or proposition. I think if you look at, again, I'll use the example of The Empty Child. Okay, that was a two-parter, which gave it an advantage. But that was a very good example where you did have very good characters that you, you, you had that emotional attachment to, but you also had a very good plot that had a couple of twists and had a very good resolution. So I don't think it's an either-or um, uh, proposition, although I do think that if they uh, want to make sure they hit something on the head, they'll always hit the emotion 
before they hit the plot. And that's modern television today. And that's modern television today. In in some instances, I mean, again, using the Flash because I'm picking the Flash because that's one I've actually just watched the last three episodes in the last couple of weeks. Oh, so. you're, you're you're there for a little bit ahead of me, so no spoilers. Oh no, no, no. But I guess there is a one big arc going through that season. Yes, yes. And yes, you can say that's a character, but it's it's always those big. And I mean, probably what sets a lot of the Flash up is those last little thirty second grabs at the end of each episode, yeah. which obviously, whoa, what's going on here? Mm, yes. Like Babylon Five used to do, where yes. you'd have those little teasers at the end of the episode or those little teaser things and you'd think oh they've talked about that like five episodes back yes. what is that or you suddenly see something happen and you think this is probably going to happen or, or, or just in the early series where you know in the middle of something there'll be a shadow ship will just pop up do something and go away mm. and you'll be like oh what, what's that I want to know more about that that's the thing you want to find out more about and that, that's probably perhaps more about how the universe works probably in terms of B5 yes um, what, what the underlying story is but um, and look, you probably don't always get that with Doctor Who. I, I think that's probably more a character-driven show than anything else. I mean, look, you, you can talk about continuity. And I mean, look, the, the classic series it, it had, didn't have any either, really. I mean, every four weeks, you got a completely new set of rules. You got a new set of characters, a new situation, and a completely new set of rules. But of course, you could get away with it by saying, well, instead of we're just totally changing the direction of the show, we've just gone to another planet on the other side of the universe 500 years in the future. So the rules are completely different to where we were last week, and you can get away with it that way. And, and even on series where they did try to do that, like, for example, the key to time, you have something like the Androids of Tara, where in about five minutes, Romand has found the key to time. The rest of the story is completely irrelevant to the search for the key mm, to time. Mm. It's just a bit of an, uh, a hook to get you in. Mm. So, Same with the whole series, really, isn't it? Yes. That was the idea of Doctor Who, wasn't it? That mm. you could go anywhere, do anything... Not, not not quite like the goodies, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know it, it is this idea of and, and I do I do like the idea of the doctor just wanders into things. He just turns up somewhere, says let's explore, finds out what badness is happening, and makes the world a better place. So, do you think that the new series is missing a trick with regards to moving away from that dynamic? Uh, would it be would it be more fun for you and and and, and Richard if it, if it sort of adopted that sort of seventies ethos or the sixties ethos? Problem is, I don't think anyone else other than us would watch it. I I, I suspect mm. you'd probably have a. I mean, as we said when the show came back, and we remember discussing this, that a show made for us probably wouldn't be of much appeal to a mass audience. So you know, I mean, there was that comment made that this is Doctor Who for the Buffy generation, but. That's probably where TV is now, and I don't. Whilst I don't think you could have made that 25, 30 years ago, you probably can't make 25, 30 year old Doctor Who now because mm. I don't think anyone much would watch. You'd have to do it as like a like a subscription based thing. No, and 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 you know I still tuned in every week and watched season eight. Um, in fact, for the first time ever, because of the lack of delay between the UK and Australian broadcast, I was watching it live to air at seven thirty on a Sunday, and I really enjoyed just sitting down and watching season eight. I'm not going to say I thought it was the best written series ever or you know a series that I'm about to go out and buy on DVD and watch forever and ever and ever but I enjoyed it I thought it was very just simple good fun and there's a place in life for simple good fun TV Stephen Moffat OBE is uh, as much a fanboy as the rest of us if he wasn't tied down to the strictures of television that we have today what sort of series do you think Doctor Who would be like or are we getting his vision I think we are and there was a really telling Mm. comment I heard on a podcast recently about him saying that I think it was to, to talk about there might be a female Doctor and that was okay because the Doctor isn't the um, audience relation character and a role model in Doctor Who, which I thought was an amazing comment because I know, and I'll be interested to hear your, your opinions on this, each of you, but I know growing up this idea of a character who, you know, 
he he um do Terence Dick's impersonation go on. He, 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 never he was never cowardly never cruel <laughs> um, but, but you know that, that sort of character somebody who valued knowledge somebody who valued um, non-violence who would try and think his way out of a thing that to me was a very role model and type then, character and then blow them up uh, look absolutely it certainly wasn't a perfect dynamic but you know Doctor Who to me was a role model growing up and, and I think a lot of people that you see that are still fans probably weren't the sporting giants in the class they were the they were the nerds of the class um you know, I went on and studied history because of my love of Doctor Who. We've got friends who are now PhD scientists because of their love of Doctor Who and people who write because of their love of, love of Doctor Who and they got that out of seeing the Doctor as a role model and his philosophy of, you know, some corners of the universe there are evils that must be fought and he's always on the side of good and, you know, as I said, values knowledge, values science. That, to me, was a role model. And for Stephen Moffat to say that he's not... I think, and that he therefore sees the companion as the role model, says that what we're getting now is exactly his vision of Doctor Who. And I I find that staggering. I really find that staggering. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. I, I, I think it is a bit of an about-face. Again, having grown up with the Doctor, I mean, you know, it was always a case that he'd out try and outthink them and then probably, as I said, then blow them up. But, um, touch, the wires, yeah, the, touch the wires, Yeah, touch the wires. Well, I mean, if you look at, say, Troughton, I mean, there's always that thing about, you know, Troughton was a clown and he was, you know, 10 jumps ahead of everybody. But if you look at what he achieves actually across his... He floods Atlantis and, like, kills, <laughs> kills everybody there, presumably kills the Macra. I mean, the faceless ones, well, they get away because they, they, they get a fairly good deal. They get a good deal. <laughs> engineers a Dalek civil war, kills Salamander... Mm. Kills the weak creature, mm-hmm. was going to kill the great intelligence, blows the ice warriors up, and then sends their next invasion flag into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> he is actually quite a violent dude. He does but, it with such a happy disposition. But that's the thing. I mean, I mean, all jokes aside, I mean, you, you sort of have. Um, I mean, there was that discussion too about consequences. In some ways, I always thought that, and I don't think Love and Monsters was the way to have done it. But there is always, I've always thought, a story, a very good story, to be told about the consequences of what happens once the Doctor leaves. Because if you, again, if you look at some of the situations, like Power of the Daleks, he, he defeats the Daleks, but he blows up the base's entire power supply. Mm. Um, and then just, oh, well, oh, off we go. Um, <laughs> you know, or he defeats the bad guys, but the planet's just in ruins, and then they just hop in the TARDIS and off they go. Um, I, I actually think there is quite a good story to be told, perhaps, around um, what happens afterwards. You know, does the fact that, yes, they've defeated whatever it is now leaves the planet open to invasion because half the planet's been trashed in him stopping it. By the face of evil. Yes, very well, indeed. <laughs> or even the Ark. Yes, actually, mm-hmm. yes. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. and that's one of my favourite stories, so thank you for mentioning that, yes. But, yeah, I, I was quite surprised about that. I mean, look, the whole Doctor is a woman thing, I, I actually suspect they may well do it, but I think it'll be one, it'll be a reset switch at the end. You'll have there'll be a it'll be either the the movie or the, there'll be a big starting event. All of a sudden, you'll become a woman. There'll be some explanations to why he's now female, and at the end of it, there'll be a reset switch back to um, back to he's suddenly a white male again. So nothing really changes in you. I, I don't think so because I, I just get the impression, and I, I I think doing that is probably a jump too far. I, I look, I could be completely wrong. I just get the impression that that's maybe tinkering a little too much with the guts of the series. Well, I mean, we've seen Moffat effectively trash continuity, the Doctor's own continuity, in recent in the last couple of years. So there doesn't appear to be anything that he's unwilling to do in terms of putting his own stamp on the series. And 
I mean, they've been talking about a female doctor for 30 years. Stephen would, you know, love the opportunity, perhaps. And he's done it once in The Curse of Fatal Death. Yes, yeah, yes he did. Yes, yes indeed. So, but he used it to make a whole lot of vibrator jokes. Stephen Moffat OBE, folks. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I, just, just on that point, how is it that Stephen Moffat has got an OBE? Not quite sure what for, other than writing. Uh, Russell T. Davies has got an OBE. I know he got that both for his contribution to TV and also to the gay rights campaign. How has Tom Baker not got an OBE, or Peter Davison, or Terence Dix. Well, it's possible they may have knocked it back. I mean, it's no, like, Nobody knocks them back when they offer to them. Well, I mean... Other than rock stars. Well, there are people. I mean, let's face it. I mean, David Attenborough's not Lord Attenborough, and his brother is. Well, in all honesty, why the hell is he not Lord Attenborough? Well, he, he, he's Sir David, though. Yeah, he's Sir, but I mean, let's face it, they made his brother appear. True, true. But, you know, Tom's got nothing. And, and you would argue in terms of contribution to the, to the world... In general, who's made the biggest contribution? Him that, or his brother? That's true. All right, well, let me put it to you this way. If, if Tom was the Doctor now, yes. if we could sort of shift that whole thing forward 30 years, would he have been given an OBE? But he's only an actor in a television show. His cultural his... contribution to three or four generations of viewers, I think, can't be denied. Yeah, well, Martin Clune's got an OBE this time. Well, right? that's exactly Martin, right. And what has Martin, Martin Clune done? Snake dance. Yeah, been behaving badly. The whole of Australian male, male <laughs> population would give him an we'll give him an order of Australia for that one. Um, but but Terence Dix, you look at the contribution Terence Dix has made to uh, literacy yeah. over generations. I'd think Terence Dix over Tom Baker. Okay, I, I wouldn't think it, it, would, it would be hard to find a reason why three disparate fellows would all of them get together and say, "I'm just going to reject." Mm. Uh, an award like that. At least one of them, if it had been offered, you would oh, think for sure. And, Tom and, is next in line somehow. Yeah, and we know that Terence is a bit of a right winger, so I'm sure he would be very happy to go to the palace and get his OBE. Very much. Malcolm, Malcolm Hulk probably would have turned it down. He would have burned it. <laughs> <laughs> Being the commie that he was. <laughs> That's right. But um, Ter- Terence always no, said that he was, he was he was the right wing anchor to Barry Barry Letts's um left wing left wing. So yeah. yeah. We're talking about politics, we're getting into a... <laughs> Actually, on politics, Dave, my question is, uh, a few about a month ago now, a lot of progressive Doctor Who fans in the UK were left lamenting the re-election of the Conservative government. And uh, if you read Twitter, a lot of rather ugly things were said, and that's the nature of Twitter, of course, social media. Dave, you're a, you're a political operative here in Australia. Uh, yes, I, I like to think that my job is somewhere between Matt Smith in Party Animals and Peter Capaldi in, in the thick of it, somewhere in between those two. Not Sir Humphrey. Not uh, just Lionel. <laughs> no, no un, un, unfortunately, the character in, in the um, Espinus that I'm most likely to be Mr. Weisel, and that's not something I want to really want to um, admit to. Ah, but he got to go on a quango. I'm hoping. <laughs> We're all hoping. Uh, why, do you, why do you think that uh, Doctor Who, uh, progressive Doctor Who fans in the UK should embrace the election of the Conservative government um, led by uh, one David Cameron? I can give you a flippant and a serious answer. Let's go with flippant first. The, 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 the flippant answer is that the Cybermen are usually better under Conservative government. <laughs> earth shock. Earth, like earth shock. But um, then there was Silver Nemesis. Tail yeah, end of Thatcher. That, 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 it was the tail end of Thatcher, yes. yeah. But your serious answer? Uh, the serious answer, and I guess the reason why I'm on the side of politics I am, is that the BBC will always be stronger when you have got the, the finances in order. And I think that Britain will be better in, in better shape under the, um, the Conservative government, and that's got to be good for the BBC. But on the other hand, the uh, Conservative government, they're in bed with Murdoch. Yes. Uh, his, Murdoch's uh, total aim is to remove the BBC. But no, no, I will actually say no, no, no. It's not to remove the BBC. Well, that might be Murdoch. That might be Murdoch's, but that's not not the government. Um, you look at what happened 
with um, UK television when they did bring independence and um, produce choice under Thatcher. Um, and okay, JNT lost out big time under that. But when you start to say to producers, you don't have to do it the BBC way, you can do it independently, you can hire and fire whoever you want, you can have your own setups, etc. There was a bit of a, a blossoming of UK television in the late 80s and early 90s of cinema verity popped yeah. up under that regime. Yeah. And she did some wonderful stuff, finally freed from the need to have a, a network do it. So whilst I get people who love the BBC will be scared of a conservative government, I actually think there could be quite a, an influx of imagination and freedom that will actually pay off very well. And that's what I think fans should look for. But Absolutely. then again, we're not living over there, so... It, know, it's very, got, very we, easy we, to have an... It's very easy to have a conversation when we're not actually uh, putting up with cuts to services. But from a perspective of Doctor Who fans looking at the BBC, oh, yeah. which admittedly is very yeah. niche, you're, you're, you're expecting, Dave, that um, there'll be more independence for producers I, I think and so. content and all that sort of thing? I, I, yeah. certainly, I certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the history of television is that it's usually better when there is greater freedom and independence. You, you look at what was happening when it was perhaps at its most insular and in-house in the late 70s, and one of some of the biggest problems that Graham Williams had, um, and even JNT's in some of his early years, was because of that insularness and that dependence on various things. And so I, I generally think that, yeah, bit of freedom of imagination could be very, very positive again. And even the way TV's made, I mean, we all know about the the, the impact the unions had on the production of the series in the late 70s, where the, the lights up. went out The lights went out yeah. at a certain time and the electricians seemed to run the show, etc., mm. etc. Et so, you know, Margaret Thatcher bringing the hammer down on the unions at that time. Yeah, well, look, I mean, Colin Baker tells the stories about, you know, how they'd pay money to go out on location and somebody would be taken along just to turn the camera on and off at the start and end of the day because the union contract said that's what they had to do. And even, even Colin Baker, who I don't think anyone would call a right-wing bastard, is, you know, said that that was ridiculous and that had to change. And that change actually turned out to be very positive. So I'm hoping that history will repeat itself, or at least rhyme, as they say. Off mic, uh, Dave, you came up with an interesting topic that we're going to talk about. So let's segue it now. Oh, well played there, Thank Mark. you. I should jump in music. It's a theory that I wanted to put out there, and that is that, in many, many cases, the best story for a companion is actually one of the worst stories of the series. So, for and, I, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why this is, but I looked at it and I thought, you know, the Space Museum, I think, is generally recognised as a very ordinary story. Apart from episode one. No, that's still crap. No. No, it's, it's, not, as, it's, it's, it's not as good as people say it is, and the, the rest of it is awful. But but um, Vicky and that is actually really, really good. She drives the plot. She's actually, you know, forms the rebellion and has a lot to do and is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bonnie Langford, is her best story is Delphine the Bannerman, which, again, is another terrible story. Um, even Romana, who's a very good companion quite consistently, but... You look at her in the Horns of Nymon, which look like it's a fun story, but it's not a good story. Mm. I think that's her best story. She basically plays the Doctor role for sort of three quarters of it. And you can go through the quite a number of companions that I think actually shine in very ordinary stories. And I'm just wondering if that's a coincidence, or is it because being an ordinary story, they get more to do? Or Adrian Time Flow is great. <laughs> <laughs> now you see, I, 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 as somebody who was both male and um, under 10 in the 1980s. I have a very soft spot for, for Matthew Waterhouse and Andrew. But again, I'm probably in the minority. I remember, I don't think I despised him at the time. I, I can't honestly say, I mean, I'd have been, what, early teens. I, I can't honestly say I ever got, like, Adric was a character for me. 
Um, having said that, I mean, I didn't really like any... That was part, probably part of the reason I didn't immediately take to Davis and I because I didn't really like any of the companions they, they put him with mm. until he got to Turlough, mm. really, because I, I found Tegan just annoying. Uh, well, um, I'd also can contend that Adric is far, far better under Tommy. Look at Adric, yes, and, yes, Ad, yes, Adric yes. and Tommy in Keeper of Truck, and that's yeah, a really yeah, good relationship. Yeah, actually, it is. Well, I suppose you have that whole thing, and I, I guess the, the thing, usual thing there is, isn't it, that... After Big Meg left, really no one gave a crap out of right for him. He was just he was just no. he was just and a companion that had to be given lines. And yeah. I'd, I'd defy any actor to have the lines that Adric had in Fort of Doomsday and do them well. It's a bit like Hayden Christensen in the. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, you, no, I, I would say it's absolutely <laughs> like Hayden Christensen. I defy anybody to do that. What is it? Love is like not like sand or whatever. Yeah, yeah. What's Hayden Christensen done since? Uh, he did Shattered Glass. He was very good in that. My life was a house before. Oh, that, that, was, that was before. Yeah, that was, that was before. before. Yeah. Was he a leaper? Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, leaper. Saw jump, that. Jumper. 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 Yeah, he that was. was it. I think I was a looper. Sorry, yeah. Jumper. <laughs> yeah. Well, other than asking George Lucas to tell fans to stop picking on him. <laughs> well, you're right about, about Adric and uh, Matthew Waterhouse and Tom, though. That's a big finished mm. production coming soon, isn't yeah. it? I just, I've, I've always. <laughs> probably. <laughs> it probably is. I want to see Matthew Waterhouse reunited with Lala Ward. Well, well, Tom, well and, I, and, Tom I, and I want to see Dalek's master plan, no, but neither of us are probably going to get our wish. Waterhouse reunited with Lala Ward. Yeah, but I'm saying, but Tom Baker, if yeah. Tom Baker and Lala Ward yeah. can all be at being separate booths at the other ends of the country, or continents, that's right. Matthew Waterhouse would tune in from New York. <laughs> we've like we've wanted well, Dave's initial topic, but I've, I've always thought that the, the dislike for Matthew Waterhouse and Adric is basically fans at that age just hating themselves and seeing themselves in that trick. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's my It's favorite. like Wesley Crusher. Same thing. Yeah, I didn't like him either. Well, is, is there a bit of Wesley Crusher about Adric? I think so. And I'm, a, again, I, I actually found being a, early, a teenager when Next Gen came out, I found Wesley Crusher a much more relatable character than others did. But again, having listened to some of uh, Will Wheaton's podcasts on the topic, he said very openly that he looks back at some of the lines he had to say and he just says, how did anybody think that that was the way to write you know, a character. I mean, to actually have Picard turn around, tell Wesley, you know, there's one episode where Picard tells Wesley, go off and do something. Wesley comes back and says, I think the android's up to no good. And Picard says, oh, shut up, Wesley. And, you know, Roy says, how is any character meant to be taken seriously if the captain gives him an order, then ignores his advice, then tells him to shut up? Mm. You know, it, it just, and you had these directors treating him as a kid. I mean, Will Wheaton is a very accomplished actor. You look at him in um, Stand By Me. What's the high school one with the terrorist? Big Bang Theory. <laughs> uh, no, no. What's the, the, the high school music with the um, kids, so- not kids soldiers, but something like that. Toy soldiers. Toy soldiers. Toy soldiers. He's very good in that. He's very good in Stand that By Me. Um, so look, you know, Will Wheaton is he's certainly a more accomplished actor than Matthew Waterhouse mm. is. But if the script's terrible, it doesn't matter how good you are, you know, unless you're John Gielgud. It's just not going to work. So then to drag it back on topic, how is it the, these Doctor Who companions are able to shine in stories that are awful? Is it simply because they are the best thing about the, ep- the story itself? Yeah, maybe. I think if, if usually the weaker stories are ones where the Doctor's not involved too much. When you look at Space Museum, Hartnell's sidelined, Horns of Nymon, Tom's sidelined, you know, Delta and the Bannerman, don't even know what McCoy... McCoy's well, just busy running around on a motorbike for two half an hour. Actually, on, on that topic, then, if you follow that one, I mean, I know you're probably not overly struck on uh, Donna Noble. Um, how do you then look at something like, say, Turn Left? I actually really like uh, Donna Noble in Turn Left. And, and look, I, I openly admit that I think that my issue with Donna Noble is more to do with Catherine, Catherine Tate. Tate than it is with the character. Well, I mean, there is that theory that... that and I think it was... Uh, I can't remember which podcast it was, but that said that, that, that there's sort of an inverse relationship. People who are fans of her other work or have seen her in other stuff probably can't abide her in Doctor Who but the people who like her in Doctor Who are people who don't know any of her other stuff mm. yeah that's probably fair but that said I really I really enjoy Martha as a companion so I, again I very it seems you very rarely hear said but 
I actually find Martha by far the most interesting companion of, of the lot. Well, she was. I mean, you just I suppose the problem there is, is is it perhaps more that the Doctor's sort of still mooning over Rose, you know, Rose would know what to do. And how do you, again, how do you as a, as a companion come back when you're sort of playing off against crap like that? But Yeah, but, but look, I think she was, you know, she was kind of almost um, a Liz Shaw-esque companion in many ways. You know, she could certainly hold her own. She was intelligent. You know, she was a trainee doctor, and I thought she was quite an interesting companion. I only say she's better than Rose because Rose had the second series. Had had Rose left at the end of series one, I would have said Rose was the best, but I couldn't stand her in season two. So that's that's strange because that was a deliberate uh, that was deliberate on the part of RTD and the production team to have that second series where the Doctor and Rose's relationship was an annoying relationship that they were smug that they were arrogant and they were setting themselves up for a fall, fall but, that's right. but people tend to forget the setting themselves up for a fall and more the I just don't like their relationship because it's really annoying no if you just casually tune in to say I want to watch Tooth and Claw tonight do you really care that at some point in 10 episodes time there'll be payoff to this or do you just find the smug and annoying well exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I would also contend that there actually wasn't much of a fall or comeuppance anyway I mean Tennant goes right through and gets more and more arrogant. And she continually comes back, despite the whole thing about they've been separated by this, Forever. this golf. They can't yeah. never see each other yeah. again. But that's the soapification of Doctor Who, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if you watch enough soapies, you'll see the characters go away, dead, yeah. come back alive. Well, that's the thing. And then, just, just to, to finally cap it all off, she goes back to the alternate universe forever. But who does she take with her? Her own Doctor Who sex toy, basically. Her own blow-up David Tennant, that, That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, and guess what? He's human, and he's going to age at the same rate you are. So, you know, it's not even like he's going to get bored with you and move on. It, it, it all ends happily ever after. That's exactly right. And um, it is the... You I know, feel it's, sick. It's the Mary... It's, <laughs> it's the Mary solification of the, of the character that, you know, she is effectively... RTD and wouldn't RTD love to be with the Doctor and all that sort of... Am I reading too much into that? I, I think, think you I, are, maybe. You might cut that bit out. But it's like saying JNT was uh, pushing his own agenda no, I, and slacking towards Colin Baker. I, I don't think RTD was interested in the Doctor, but... I'm, that's I'm, what slash fiction is. I, I am fairly sure that he was writing the midshipman frame scenes with one hand. <laughs> well... Uh, okay. well, and, they, and they're hey. just segueing from that topic. Richard, you've got a theory about the Paternoster gang. <laughs> you really want to do this? No, right? let's do this. <laughs> Come on. I'm just going to. What about Monster Pelham? Let's go back to the original topic because you're right. Monster Pelham is a really crap story, but Liz Sladen, Terry Jane character, has got a lot to do in that story. She does, and she does it very, very but well. And again, she's also set up by Terence Sticks the whole thing about, you know, being not only a woman. Um, and the whole thing about the end of the story, the Doctor grabs her by the ear and drags her into the TARDIS. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just remember that bit now. Yes. yes. Yeah, look, I think in some of these weaker stories that are what we would now call Doctor Light, the companions do get a chance to shine, and, and the good actors and actresses. I think Maureen O'Brien, for example, is a really underrated actress. Mm. Give her a chance to actually shine and lead the plot, and she's really, really good. Uh, so are you saying that Bonnie Langford is actually a good actress? I think that Bonnie Langford is a fantastic theatre actress. Yes. You, you, you don't get to be, you know, in the opening night of Cats without having considerable talent. And to have had the career that she's had in the West End, you know, she's a very, very good actress. But she is a, she's not a television actress. And, you know, there are some lines... I, I remember watching Dragonfire recently where she had the line that anybody else would have sort of done as, OK, how are we going to get down there? And she's sort of... So how are we going to get down there? Which, if you're playing to the back row of a theatre, works really, really well. But just to segue off that for a second... I'll put Colin Baker in the same yes. same thing. Colin is a really good, you know, theatre, I am an actor type person. And I imagine Colin on stage would fill a theatre brilliantly. That doesn't really work on television. But because audio is very like theatre in that you have to use your voice 
and really set the scene yourself. Mm. Big Finish, I think, works for him as well, and people always say he's very good on Big Finish. And Bonnie Langford as well. Bonnie and Bonnie Langford, Langford as well. It's fantastic. So these, these are, I think, very classic theatre actors that actually didn't quite work. I, I don't think Colin did work on TV, but I think he would be, he's a very good actor for theatre, and the same with Bonnie. Now, segueing to the Paternoster Gang of the show. <laughs> <laughs> the Paternoster Gang, or as I like to call them, the Sex Theme Trio. <laughs> I mean, they're quasi-companions for the, for the Doctor, aren't they? That's how they've been set up. They are. I mean, look, I, I think... Was it Rob Lloyd, I think you had on? He made quite a valid point with them. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be, you know, the great detective and her... Well, Chums. sex slaves. But they're, um, but they're supposed to be the great detective in this, you know, crime-fighting gang or whatever. But, of course, when you pair them with the Doctor, of course, they really... What do they get to do? Because the Doctor is your central character and he's really the one carrying the narrative and solving all the problems so they're really just relegated to you know hey look we're just part of the doctor's gang which is it could be interesting in its own right they perhaps would work better maybe in a spin-off series so we then wouldn't have to watch it but, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it struck me the, the idea of them being a sex being trio um, if you want to do this was that um, it was actually came from watching deep breath because if you look at the relationship in that it's really, there's a very big sort of power imbalance, if you like, between Vasta and, and uh, Jenny, um, in that, you know, she has Jenny sort of posing semi-nude, just basically for her own amusement, you know, and there's the whole thing about why well, I'm your maid when, for, to keep up appearances in the real world, and guess what, you're making me do it when I'm... Um, so if you sort of put a slightly more twisted slant on that, you then come up with, well, she's the master sex fiend, Jenny's just her current protege... And that makes Drax the enabler. And the thing is, but the thing is, if you then watch that that stupid scene where he's giving Clara her medical, medical checkup, that suddenly takes on a whole new sinister meaning. <laughs> if you, he's if a you procu- that. procurer. In a, in, in That's a right. Process. You know, and then you drop your guard for a minute, and suddenly, wham! You're down the bottom of the pit, having the lotion passed out. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't comment at all on this theory, Richard, because any time the um that gang came on TV now, I just sort of glaze over and wait for them to move on. And I think you can actually divide fandom up by those who like them and those who don't. It's a very clear divide. I think you can, but I know they're going to be in the new series. I defy you now to watch the episode they're in in the same well, light. This has been your theory for the last six months, and I can't. I mean, it's just impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Sex infects everything, basically. But I mean, on that point about her being the great detective and playing second yeah. fiddle, I mean, if anyone, anyone who's ever read uh, The New Adventure or Consuming Fire... You'll see that that's a book of two halves, where the Sherlock Holmes pastiche a good, a good half, half and a crap half. is is fantastic, and then uh, yeah. he, then Holmes effectively becomes a companion to the Doctor, and it's it's a it's it's terrible. So mm. that sort of dynamic doesn't really work. No, it can't be, work. No, because in theory, Holmes is a is a, a central character in his own right, and mm. you can't one of them has to play second fiddle. And of course, because it's Doctor Who, I mean, I guess if you went maybe if you wrote a Sherlock book with the Doctor in it. No, actually, the Doctor would probably still be No, the Doctor would still be there. <laughs> the Doctor would yeah. still be, yeah, still mess it up. But what about Strax, though? I mean, <laughs> I, look, we don't like him. The, the, the enabler. We don't, with the enabler. Is that because of... <laughs> we grew up with a classic series, and we have this you know, preconceived view of what the Sontaran should be like. If I go back to the serious point in regards to that, Mark, I found when I watched the episode where Strax starts off in Glasgow... And he's just gone up there to get into pub fights. <laughs> that, 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 that was quite funny. And, yeah. and, and, and at the start of an episode, when you just get into the plot, Strax you know, getting a few good lines is quite funny. What I disliked was as the episode went further and further in and things got more and more dire, Strax is still making these kooky, off-the-wall, really funny one-liners. And it was really out of place. So you've got that scene where it's the same episode where they're all in the 
I don't know, the mental void no, thingy, I can't remember what it was, um, to the point where I think Jennifer is actually killed well, and, and, and brought back to life at the end of it. That's another goes back to your point about the reset, because, yeah. again, so, if she died and you think this is really serious... So, so that reinforces my earlier point, but but again, you've got this build-up of you know one of the Doctor's gang being killed, and Strax is still making jokes about, you know, answer the question, boy, or whatever it was, and it completely undermines us. So I think Strax has his place, but... You can't have a comic character in dramatic circumstances, and he does that, and it just doesn't work for me. Mm. Have we launched completely off base with your sex fan trio? No, I defy you. I still think it holds. I think that's <laughs> every bit as valid a theory as, uh, as anything else. And plus, they appeared in a story titled Deep Breath. Yeah, well. Dr. Huah. <laughs> <laughs> now, apparently, that. Oh. Uh, the bloke off, off the buses apparently tried to say that was his little trademark and he was the first one ever to do that. Really? Yeah, the, uh, the um, blonde, not uh, Reg Varney, the other one. Uh, oh, the, the blonde guy? Jack, um, no, yeah. Jack, yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? That's Actually, on Reg Varney, did you know Reg Varney was the first person in Britain to use an ATM? Yes, I did know that. Barclays. Was, yes, Barclays. Yeah. Barclays. Barclays. That was the first ATM. All I have to say to that is Mad Men is releasing the On the Buses movie on DVD in the next couple of months. I'll get you back. <laughs> Like a dog returning to its vomit, I'm going to talk about the <laughs> Omni-Rimmel once again. <laughs> now, I mean, I know it's been 18 months to two years since, almost two years since they were released, but we haven't had Richard and Dave's thoughts about the find and the, the rumours swirling about it. First off, what did you think, Dave, about having the ability to see more uh, trout? Oh, look, obviously I was a, a huge, huge fan of that era. Very, very excited. Um, loved them. Um, I still think that uh, Enemy of the World is structurally flawed, but who cares? You get to watch it and you get to see Trout's performance. It's great. Web of Fear actually went up, in my opinion. I remember reading the book and thinking that the ending was a bit... Um, contrived? Yeah, yeah, contrived is a good word. But actually seeing it performed in the way that Trout and Fraser and all that do it, it, it works. It absolutely works. So Web of Fear absolutely went up, in my opinion. As for the rest of the Omni-Rimmer, obviously I'd love to see them back. Um, but I have two, two thoughts as an amateur watcher of the Omni-Rimmer. One is I've said, I have a golden rule that is if any ever rumour includes Power of the Daleks or Evil of the Daleks, it's not true. Because I think the chances of them being existing are just zilch. Um, but my broader thought is that I can see no logical reason why if there was more episodes out there, we wouldn't have heard about it by now. So after nearly two years, you know, we were six months and then they're saying we're waiting for the season to get out of the way or the anniversary to get out of the way or they need to be cleaned up or whatever. You thought there might be something else, but two years later, there's no reason for them not to have released something. So I'm calling it quits, but I think others have other thoughts and others have followed it more closely than I have. I was just going to say, where do you sit on the international Omni-Rumor alert system? Are you sub-low or flatline or are you... I'm, I'm, I'm Nick Cleglow. Oh, God, there's another sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, you've uh, no, you've look, watched I, this as, <clears throat> as much as anyone else. I have. I mean, look, I'm probably almost at the flatline point too. I think it's hard because I um, spoke to a few people in fandom, um, and, and some months before the reco- uh, recovery was announced, um, who said that there'd been a find, and that was um, around the time we was. And, and those of us who were in the room sort of went, "Oh, yeah, whatever." And the uh, people involved sort of mentioned it a couple more times. And it got to specific stories, and it was that it was Enemy of the World, Web of Fear, and, and Marco Polo. And I think when it then became apparent that actually there had been something found, and I guess for anybody else who was sort of peddling that information, 
they, of course, immediately went up in everybody's estimation. Like, oh, crap, actually, you were right. So I think anything else that people then said, of course, like, oh, actually, the first bit was true. So probably some of this other stuff is probably true. And, and, and it just sort of, you know, plus you had those, those ridiculous media reports that he found, like, all 109 missing episodes or whatever. But um, so, but as time has gone on, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a few sort of arguments. I mean... If, if you were sitting on a stockpile of complete stories, really, why would you release something like Web of Fear that, that's missing an episode? And if you were sitting on a complete version of Marco Polo, surely that's the one you'd, you'd pick. So you had a heart and a land of trout, and I would have thought when you were doing the releases. So, the, the, so as time has gone on, I mean, look, who knows really where the search is at? I mean, look, you know, I don't doubt there are probably still cupboards and things to be looked in. Um, and I, and you know, probably the search and everything is ongoing. The, the thing that, that surprises me all the way through it is, and, and I know there's been some activity on, on Twitter and in forums and that over the last little uh, last few days or weeks um, with Phil and, and being under constant attack from, uh, you know, those the, who, who... The usual suspects. Yeah. The, the thing that I find interesting is just the fact that I would have thought he could have stopped all of it with just one definitive statement just saying look i've this is what i found i've returned i only found nine episodes of doctor who they're back with the bbc the search is ongoing now piss off and let me get on with it and then close your twitter account down or do whatever but the fact he just keeps dropping these half hints or the wind's blowing in the right direction or it's looking more positive or something is just and you're sort of left with well he's going to announce something but we don't know what at some future time, and we don't know when. Uh, it's just all empty, just rhetoric, really. And I, I don't, that's the bit I don't get is why he hasn't just said, look, there's nothing, just, there's nothing more, just leave me alone. I mean, look, obviously you're going to have the idiot friends who won't believe him regardless of what he says. But uh, that's the one thing, because you could knock a lot of this stupidity on the head by just releasing a definitive statement that, look, that's it. Yes, I found nine episodes of Doctor Who, and I haven't found any more yet. The problem with that is that Phil himself has poisoned the well by his, his so-called definitive comment uh, in the lead-up to the announcement where on his TIEA site he said, there's nothing there, I've not found anything, leave me alone. Mm. So if he was to come out with something definitive, people would just say, perhaps, that he's playing for time, or they, you know, as you say, the idiot fringe wouldn't necessarily believe him. But he's just, you know, wanting people to leave him alone by saying something like that. Yeah, look, I, I, I know that there is now a mini industry around psychoanalyzing Phil Morris, and mm. people get a lot of, you know, well, certainly take up their time doing it. I'm, you know, really don't care one way or the other what sort of a character he is. I'm very grateful he's released, he's returned two stories. But as I say, I can't think of a logical reason why, if he had more, he wouldn't have seen something now. So I think that logic dictates. And, you know, the doctor will tell us that logic just allows us to be, what is it, wrong with authority, but logic does dictate that there probably isn't anything else there. That makes me very sad because some of my favourite stories are missing, but, you know, that's just where we are. And at the end of the day, we're nine episodes better off than what we were two yeah, years we ago. And, I mean, look, I, I've always found it unusual, and, and maybe somebody who's more versed with uh, missing episodes would, would see from the patterns of sales and returns why that's the case, why none of Marco Polo was turned up. That, that continues to be a bit of a mystery for me, given it out of the that, that first block of 26 episodes were the ones that were most widely sold all around the world. And and even allowing for bicycling, I, I think there's still more prints of that issue than, than anything else. I mean, if you get to a story like, say, um, I mean, I mentioned earlier, I'm quite keen, I'd be quite keen to see some of the later Hartnells, but you get to a story like The Mythmakers and The Massacre, 
uh, they were only screened in like four or five countries and there were probably at most three copies of that film ever struck. So your chances of, of getting that back are quite minimal. Although having said that, I mean, look, Tomb of the Cybermen is one that only screened in four countries and, and look, they found a complete set of prints. So yeah, I, I have always been uh, con- in- intrigued as to, as to why not one episode of Marco Polo has ever turned up anywhere. I mean, the, the refrain that you hear from people, people like uh, Richard Molesworth is that you, where they found Webb and Enemy is where you would expect them to be found. But then your point there is, well, you would have expected to find Marco in one of 16 or 17 places, so where's it gone? And Unless I, they were, you know, it was one of those stories that was really thoroughly dealt with. Maybe. I mean, look, and I suppose if you expected to find, um, I guess the other argument is if you expected to find Webber, Fear and Enemy of the World, then what about the other two stories they sold at the same time, which were Abominable Snowmen and The Fury from the Deep, or one uh, of the... Uh, the Will in Space. space. Yes, Will in Space. Well, then the argument there is, is if, if fandom had been, if the people who were looking at the time in the 80s weren't just relying on faxes and phone calls and actually had actually boots on the on. ground, they yeah. may have found those stories and web and enemy. But, um, I mean, that's hindsight, obviously. All right, so that's the Omni rumour. Oh, I think so. Are you? Can we put it to bed now? <laughs> or, or is there... While his life is hope. I've put it to bed, tucked it in, read it a midnight story, turn the light off and shut the door. <laughs> Mark? Same? I'm done. Rob? Um, There's still a flicker? Look, there is still a flicker. I mean, like you say, I mean, look, well, Marco and Enemy and Webb were all conflated together as part of being these stories that had been found. And then, you know, Marco fell off the perch. I'm I'm an optimist a little bit with regards to this, so I think maybe there's I mean there's certainly not 97 episodes have been found that's just that's balderdash that's crap that's that's just mm. rubbish that's fantasy from fantasy. and it always was yeah if another 5 or 6 or 10 or 15 episodes have been found by Phil and he for whatever reason that we don't know that he's holding on to them for some you know imaginary wonderful point on the calendar perhaps but I mean look I'm, I'm inclined to lean towards Dave's position that that's it no more we're going to get you know dribble of orphan episodes here and there you're not going to get 90, 97 episodes. It's just, it's just crap. It's just I, crap. I think it's it for Doctor Who, but I do think he has found other TV shows. Well, we know he's found other TV shows. I mean, mm. Walker and Wise. And, but and do you think but I, I think he's actually he's on sitting, more. He's sitting I on I think more? he's sitting on more. Yeah. So he's not released them because he hasn't found a commercial reason or he hasn't been offered enough to, to release them? I, I don't know the man's motivations, but I just... So do you want to talk specific? What do you think he's got? I can read the list. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I just I, think I, he t- sent me a list the other day. In, in <laughs> terms of laws of averages, all we're focusing on is Doctor Who, of course, because we're Doctor Who fans. But if you think about his going to all these different countries, surely he would have found other television material that's been sitting there, and he would have recovered it. And he might be donating it to the BFI, or he might be trying to work out well who's the best home for this, or. If there are commercial implications, I'm not too sure. But well, surely he, the, he, law, the law of averages must mean that there's something, he must have recovered something else. And, and he is a commercial operator. Let's, not, right. let's, let's not forget that. He's that's allowed right. to operate under the, the, the way that a commercial operator yeah, runs. That's right. He's there to make a profit and yeah. let him. Yeah. And, if that, and that, if that involves commercial incompetence and commercial silence on, on these other programs, mm. well, that's fine. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. So what does that say about fandom's maddening desire to know? Because he has been, in the last few days prior to recording of this, he has been bombarded with questions on Twitter in, main, in the main because he's actually started talking about Doctor Who again or missing episodes again. People uh, on Facebook, obviously. I mean, he's effectively been stalked on social media to but an I mean, extent. That's been going on for ages. I mean, you had people lodging freedom of information requests. And still doing so right now. Um, and going through shipping manifests. 
um, and whatever, you know, trying to work out, hey, look, here's a container that went to Liverpool three years ago. But, but I mean, is, 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 is it a dark side to fandom or is it just simply we want to know? It is a very dark side to fandom. I think there is a dark side. There's an, obviously a very obsessive side to because fandom. Because there are people on fandom who have, you know, the, the, the famous lock-up in, in, in Wigan in, in the UK, people apparently have been there, have, have, have taken photos of, of the lock-up, um, know where he lives know where his account, you know, where the business is located yeah, and, in terms and, of an account. And sorry, at the moment when you are looking up the private residential address of an individual, yeah. that, that is questionably crossing but, the line. But, and, but, I mean, that but doesn't he tell might you have the episodes under his bed, David. It is still crossing the line, but, and it's, no. it's, it, you're right, it is a, a very dark side. But then on the flip side, Phil does play the game as well. I mean, mm. he released the photo of himself in front of the Sierra Leone Broadcasting Corporation gates. A couple of days ago, he released a photo of himself with two gentlemen who, who appear to have worked for the Nigerian Television Association. Mm. So, And recently, his wife has made a couple of comments which seem to indicate that perhaps they actually are waiting, uh, sitting on stuff, and if it wasn't for mad fans... It may be released in time. Well, I, I think that's I think, my reading of that particular tweet. Yeah, but. I, I must admit, I kind of got that impression as well. Uh, but again, I come back to he is a commercial operator. Oh, so for sure. if, if he if he wants to keep his company in the spotlight for commercial reasons, that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. That doesn't then give people the right to be rude, interrogate, harass, and certainly to go and hand him at his private residence. But then, what do you say with regards to that? What do you say about what fans would say that? If he is sitting on a pile of Doctor Who episodes that were created by the BBC, which is a publicly run entity, he has an obligation to hand those back. He can't sort of claim commercial confidentiality on that. I would say that given that he has expended money from his company to do that, he is well within his rights to want to recoup those profits to, uh, you know, as part of that process. And if any fan says that you know that's a negative thing, I'll simply say, well, if it took a commercial operator spending money to find the episodes, then that's what it took, and they weren't found by amateur enthusiasts on no budget, so we just have to take that as part of it. Um, we work in a commercial world, and we shouldn't expect him to just pay tens of thousands of pounds to return something out of the goodness of his heart. If it costs that much money, that's fine. That's the world, and I'd rather I'd rather have them having forked out cash for them than have them still sitting in a vault in some desert somewhere. And that would indicate to us, I suppose, that at some point, if he's sitting on anything, whether it be Doctor Who or, as Mark says, other stories, I mean, <clears throat> the commercial imperative will mean that they will be returned at some point once a deal is struck. That's exactly right. Well, assuming he can strike a deal. Well, well at, yeah. at, at, some, at some point, he has to strike some deal. Cause it, it, well, not necessarily, it, because some of the ITV stuff, and I know that's been one of the consistent rumours here, the reason that hasn't been handed back is because either no one wants it or that, you know, they don't want to pay no, for it. No, but if we're talking about Doctor Who, there's clearly a, a commercial market out there. Yeah. There's clearly a deal to be struck, and he has to, he has to make a profit at some point. So, hypothetically, would be in a good position. I don't believe that he is, but you ask the question. He is, right, he is within his rights to wait to make a deal that works for him, and that's... The reality of it and that's fine and uh, on that point the buzz around fandom is that the BBC have basically washed his hands washed their hands off him that they don't believe that he has anymore and um, that's about it well well all that needs to happen then is if they say we're not going to negotiate with you without evidence he walks into his next negotiation with a film print and suddenly they will open their checkbook I mean mm. and, and this is what it comes back to when I talk about the logical reason 
if he wants to make a profit out of those, and he has the episodes, he will walk into a BBC meeting with a film print and say, here is proof of what I have. Open your checkbook. The fact that that doesn't happen, or hasn't happened, suggests to me that he doesn't have the film print to walk into the room with. Can't argue with logic, I suppose. And, it's in, and just... And, and, you know, I, I want these to be returned possibly more than anyone, other people because, as I say, these are many of my absolute favourite stories. But what I'm saying is cold, hard logic. Mm. If he had the film print, he would have walked in there with it and said, write me a cheque. He hasn't. Therefore, I don't see that he has the film print. Richard, just what you said before about him, he could knock this on the head. There are mm. other people, who too, who, could, who are close to this as well, who could knock it on the head. I mean, I think we all acknowledge that Paul Venezes is the closest person in fandom. But he tends not to say very much about it at all. Not anymore. No, um, and not for some time. See, I mean, jumping back even further, see, I, I would argue, I know we've had this discussion before, I, I think in, back in the old Restoration Team days, I actually think one of the biggest mistakes they ever made was starting to engage with fans. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Because then it just opened them up for just, you know, I mean, yeah, there were people who actually wanted to have legitimate technical discussions or do whatever, but there's also the, the, the nutbag fringe who just want to harass them and why haven't you released them and what are you sitting on? And and, and the problem with any social media is that once the nutbag fringe gets involved, most people walk away and don't engage. Mm. And you, you know that's what happened with the restoration team at one point. The only people who were even bothering to talk to them were the nutbag fringe because no one else could get a word in. Yeah, and then you eventually get to the point where they've just gone, look, Screw it, basically. We're walking away from this. They had their version of Godwin's law in that as soon as someone mentioned Anne Levine, it would just destroy the conversation (laughs) and distort it completely. Mm -hmm. So they should never have engaged with fandom to the extent that they did. And and we've seen the repercussions today. I I think it was a mistake. Um, I mean, as I said, there were people who genuinely wanted to have legitimate technical discussions with them. Um, we were obviously interested in the technology behind the conversion processes or what about Vidfire or whatever. But the problem is it opened the door for the idiot fringe. And I think they paid for that. Um, and really, I think when they were just a group of anonymous guys who worked at the BBC, did some did some searching work, did some restoration work, and we all went, oh, great, aren't these, DVD, aren't these videos and DVDs simply mm. awesome? That was probably a much better situation for them. But... I don't know with Phil because he sort of as I said the thing that I don't get with Phil Morris is because he posts these sort of half things like you know that, that the wind is blowing as I said the wind is blowing in the right direction expect the unexpected expect the unexpected all those things in the last few days where he sort of intimated initially that um, you know that the, if you read the, those Twitter things that we were looking at a few days ago um, if you read the first part of those it sort of indicates well yeah I'm sitting on stuff and I'll you know give it back when I'm good and ready but then you look later on and it becomes incredibly nebulous. And really all that seems to be doing is just inciting people. Because if he just said nothing or just posted, isn't the sky nice today and I went to watch, you know, Aunt Liverpool playing well at the moment or whatever, you might find that, that uh, some of this other nonsense wouldn't happen. So he should withdraw from social media entirely. Because he has done that for the last you know, six well, months. I, I suppose the problem yeah. is he complains that people are harassing him, but all he seems to do, a lot of these posts just seem to egg them on. So you're sort of left with either is he a troll uh, or is he... <laughs> yeah, but on the, on the other hand, when he did have six months quiet, it actually didn't stop anything anyway. So he's damned if he doesn't, he's damned if he doesn't. But in the end, end of the day, I don't really care what Phil Morris tweets. No. I, I, no, I, troll. I, I, I care about whether an episode's been found. And unless he tweets, I have found an episode, here's a photo, it's just all white noise. And the less time we spend talking about it on podcasts like this, to be frank... 
um, the better. I, I just think that this is a non-issue. So to wrap it up then. I'll... So so you want to cut the last 10 minutes out of the No, program? no, no. <laughs> no, no it, it's, a, it's a valid discussion to have, but yeah. I think that just, you know, psychoanalyzing a, you know, a 140 character tweet mm. every six months is just a way of looking for upset. True. But I think we can all agree that I have found more of Power of the Daleks than Phil. Yes, and, and, and we thank yes. you for it. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes. You, you've also found more than Ian Levine has. That's it. How's that we feel? We just mentioned Ian Levine. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> he, he can block you again. <laughs> A topic amongst ourselves recently was the future of the new series and whether we would th- thought it would be around in three, four, or five years' time. Uh, a bit of a roundtable conversation on that one, starting with Dave. Well, first of all, I'll lay it out there and say my view probably means nothing because I thought the series would get to seven years and stop because I thought that was the natural lifespan for a series. Um, so prefacing it that, that way, I think the show's probably got two or three more years and at some point it will reach a natural end because I think all television reaches a natural end at some point and, and, and Doctor Who is not outside of that rule. Would, would it reach an end or would it just go rest for a few years before they revived it? Both of those options are possible, um, but I think it will be one or the other. I, I don't think any TV show continues forever and I think at some point the BBC is going to want to make something new and find the new Doctor Who. And, and, that's, just, and that's not saying that the series is good or bad or indifferent. That's simply reality in television. Every show at some point reaches a natural life cycle. Doctor Who's is extended because of the ability to regenerate, but even so, at some point, the BBC will want to do something else. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. I, I think, being a bit more cynical, I, I would say it'll um, continue to be made as long as it keeps bringing in the cash for the BBC, because at the moment it's got a very high profile, it's got a lot of overseas sales, they can generate a vast amount of money in merchandising um, and sales and brand positioning and it's breaking into consistently into new markets and what have you. But as you said, at some point that is probably going to stop and those sales will start to, to ease off. The show will start to probably lose audience. You'll, you'll start to find the audience will maybe start to, to drop off a fraction. And, and again, the BBC will get to a point where the cost of making the show outweighs the benefit they get from being able to sell it on. And I suspect at that point, whether they rest it or whether they retire it, now whether that's then the point where you go, hey, look, we'll go out with a movie. Uh, yeah, and, and one point that I remember Sylvester McCoy making on the doco on the Survival DVD, and I think it was a really valid point from McCoy, and everybody makes valid points occasionally, even McCoy. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's harsh, that's harsh. No, no, Sylvester McCoy made a really good point on the doco that people in television want or, or, or get their reputation by creating something that's successful, not for taking over that something that's successful. So you look at the people who took over the West Wing from Aaron Sorkin. Mm. They, if anything, wrote even better episodes than Sorkin yeah. did, but nobody gives them credit no. because they didn't create it. Yeah. Sorkin will always be the creator. Joss Whedon has a reputation because he can create shows. The guy who did Glee and um, a whole lot of other stuff, whose name I completely Nip forget. Tuck. Yeah, Nip Tuck. I um, can't remember the guy's name, but again, his reputation is for creating shows. You make your reputation creating a new show. So if you're an up-and-thrusting producer at the BBC... Do you want to create your own show and make a reputation or take over Doctor Who in its 11th or 10th year? So I guess by that basis, I mean, Stephen Moffat following RTD then would be a hard act to follow. So your next producer really is going to have their work cut out for them. I, I think and hope the next producer will be somebody... Like Mark Gatiss or... No, 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 no the opposite, the opposite. I think it should be somebody completely outside the Doctor Who world mm. who is very capable but can look at it completely fresh 
and, and maybe do a very, very different take on the show and give it a new set of life. I think anybody who is inside the Cardiff bubble who takes it over will just do more of the same with a spin. I want to see somebody from outside come in and give it a whole new list of life. And I'd love the show to keep going for another five or ten years, but it needs to have a freshness to do that, and I think that that is unlikely in television. I hope you proved wrong, but that's just what I observe in the television world. My opinion, thank you. Uh, I think Doctor Who will last probably for another two or three years and will then venture into a Netflix realm where you'll have television specials every two to three months. I think the constant pressure of churning out a 12 to 13 episode run every year will... I mean, it's going to run out of ideas. They need to slow them down. There's still cash to be made. The BBC is looking, you know, is going in cahoots with Netflix when they did Ripper Street Season 3 where they, they Netflix had the first right transmission and then BBC will get a screen it afterwards, I think it'll move down to that platform later on. I think it won't stop, it'll just slow down. There's still lots of money to, to be made and syndication will just keep happening in the background. Are they over 100 episodes yet? Doctor Who? Yeah, of the new series? Yeah, so 100 episodes plus, they'll just keep, uh, keep churning it out. Do we have any guesses or opinions on who we'd like to see as doctors in the future? What about Rob? Oh, sorry, Rob. Uh, I'm just going to pivot off. Thank you, gentlemen. I was going to pivot off, pivot off uh, Dave's comment um, about commercial commercialisation, commercialism uh, a few minutes ago. Um, I seriously think that the show will go on maybe another five or six or ten years simply because there's money to be made. And if... I mean, as long as there's money to be made, the show will be made, whether it's you know broadcast terrestrially in the UK first or whether it becomes a subscription service via download, uh, and whether that means that they might cut back episodes to maintain their profitability, I'm not quite sure. But I think the show has still got legs. We might quibble about the approach that it takes, but clearly it's very popular. DVD sales are up there, merchandise sales are up there, and in, in, as, we're, you know, as we're going down that, uh, that road towards downloads, uh, etc., etc., I think that um, it's, certainly its commercial value is still there, which will justify being on, on telly. And... Dave's point about you know the BBC wanting to make something new is valid, but it, if, if if Doctor Who moves onto a, a digital or download platform entirely, well that'll free up a slot. It'll be the best of both worlds. Well, it'll free up a weekly slot, but Doctor Who will still be available for everyone out there. But but I, I guess my counter to that, and I don't want to be Mr. Negative, but I, that's turned out that way, is again if you are creating a digital world or a digital network, why would you want to have a 10-year-old brand when you could create your own new one. But then you would go into the marketplace with an assured brand. Mm. The, the Doctor Who is... The people know and recognise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, it's, it's all about brand marketing these days, Look, isn't it? it is, and I think, I think maybe you're right about the, the future of Doctor Who will, in the, will, will be telling because it will be the future of television generally. Mm. Ten years ago, I think I would have been absolutely right because there was still that sense of creativity about the network. If it really is pure dollars and just flogging dead horses, so, you know, as you say... 60 minutes of Doctor Who or 90 minutes of Doctor Who every three months just for the buck, I think that would, that would be quite sad. It would say a lot of very sad things about the television industry. Mm. But with on, online content, maybe you guys are right. And maybe it will just be really successful and we'll love it. But on that point, I'm surprised that, you know, if the BBC, to go against my comment, if the BBC wanted to go down the commercial, really hit it hard with commercial, uh, you know, the dollar, why aren't they doing a series of McGann specials? And releasing them digitally, releasing them purely for the DVD market, because you know I, I think there is a at least an interest, 
and possibly a demand for that. Would, would that be justified, though? I mean, look, we all watched Night of the Doctor and went, man, isn't that awesome? But you're probably catering for... Because, I mean, it, it, depending on what stories you wanted to tell, I mean, if you're going to tell, like, McGann in the Time War, that's going to have to be big budget. So you're going to have to tell smaller stories if you're going to just do small specials, I would, I would you, you could do what they're doing with the, the, the revived series of the X-Files where you just do you know, a run of six episodes. And, you know, you, 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 you build into it. You, you build up to it. But would new series, people who've come in through the new series be, be interested in something like that? Or are you really just preaching to, to people like us who really thought he got a raw deal years ago when woo, when we saw Night of the Doctor? Well, I would say that if you can get DVD sales that are similar to the, you know, the, the, the sales run for, for DWM on a monthly basis of thirty or 35,000 people, that's a success. Whether that is enough to justify the outlay... But then, mm. then you've got sales mm. to markets and all that sort of thing. I think if you... Again, Doctor Who, I think, is a bit of a brand now. And whether it's Capaldi in the lead or McGann in the lead, it's all Doctor Who. And uh, I've missed the opportunity to hit the table there, but I mean... I, so, I, I, but but, but could, I, could I counter that? Please. Um, as somebody who was a bit of a Star Trek fan in the 90s, there was a time when... If we were, if we were having this conversation about Star Trek in about 1995 we would have said it's going to go on forever. They've got the model. They have two series running simultaneously. When one ends after seven years, you start the new one with a whole different crew. They, they looked as though they were going to have Star Trek going forever. But, but at some point, it, it, it lost its impetus. Um, well, it was Voyager, wasn't it? <laughs> well, well, Voyager struggled. Then Enterprise um, started off with a really cool concept. Then they lost their nerve and went back to really generic, and the whole thing just collapsed. But it happened a so lot. It, it, but it, ha- it happens in television, you know. But it did. It's, I mean, it happened in Babylon 5. I mean, you remember how excited we all were when we were watching season 3 and season 4. Absolutely. And then we watched season 5. Yes. And now I know there was a lot of production issues in that with B5. Yes, but, but you're only one bad series away from fans That's the thing. Away. But then every time they tried to revive it, and they had a couple of goes at reviving it, or, yes. or a few goes at reviving it, really, and they all just tanked. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, you look at Crusade, which was the spin-off, that didn't get anything like the audience or the interest that the original one did. So as, as strong as brands are um, in the creative world, I don't think anything is assured. Um, you know, James Bond went for a long time with a huge, huge gap in it because there was a lack of impetus and a lack of interest. It's come back very successfully, but... But they've had to reinvent it. But they, exactly right. Hmm. But did Star Trek peak at the wrong time? I mean, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Did they, have they sort of missed the wave that we're currently in? in I'd actually argue they perhaps tried to just flog it too hard. I mean, you've sort of got to have multiple series in production, mm. so it's just wall-to-wall Star Trek. Yes, plus the movies. Yeah. Um, look, there's, there's no right or wrong model, mm. but I think that shows like, like B5 and Trek and Buffy just show that nothing is certain in, in the television world. No, yeah, yeah. And as much as we'd like to hope we get you know, 26 series of the new series. So 26 seasons of the new series. I th- would be surprised if we did, but I was wrong. I, I was wrong predicting in 2005 it would get seven years. I could be completely wrong tonight. Is the new series at the moment too reliant on Stephen Moffat hanging around? Um, no. Or is that the wrong question to ask? I think you could certainly change format. I mean, look, I think if you then got a new producer, if you go down that path, you're going to have to reinvent the series again. I mean, you can argue that Matt Smith was a complete departure from, say, David Tennant and everything they set up during the RTD years. And I think you're going to have to probably go have a clean out again. New doctor, new production, new producer, new production team, and do yes. another hard, hard reset almost. Which, which the bill did a couple of times. Mm. And one of them was very unsuccessful, but several of them were very successful. And that show lasted, what, about 18 years, I think? Yeah. So, yes, it can be done, but that show 
you look at season one of the bill complete compared to season five, 10, 15, they're very, very different mm. TV shows. Yeah. And the same would have to happen with Doctor Who. But you can't keep bringing Burnside back every every, every time you want to reinvent the show. <laughs> no, any, any more than you can just bring David Tennant back in Doctor Who no, every time right. the ratings spike or the ratings tip. So I'll come back to the question I asked. Anybody you'd like to see or think will be the Doctor in the future? Personally, I'm not really up on, on many English no, or British I'm actors. probably much the same. I, I mean, would like someone who's over 45. I'd... I'd don't want to see a return to someone between 25 and 35. Martin Clunes OBE? Martin Clunes OBE? He's got the... Yeah, I mean, he's got the... This this word that everyone uses, gravitas, and I, I'm guilty of it as well. I think you want an actor who's got some heft, who that actor happens to be. Mm. And I think actors over a certain age are the ones who have accrued that. Uh, for, you know, Matt Smith, you know, loved by all the girls, loved him, everyone's screaming, all that sort of thing. I wasn't a Didn't. big fan. Not a big fan of him and the, and the era. But I mean, an older actor. I, mean, I wasn't a big fan of you. I liked him. I thought he was really good. I he, he's certainly talented beyond his years. Yeah. I think if they go down the young path, Thomas Sankster would be someone I'd want to see, who was in uh, Human Nature, okay. and has had quite a good body of work outside of Who. I think he'd be a very good young actor. But they would no doubt surprise us. I suppose who, they would select an actor that would match the approach that they were going for. I mean, that's right. Well, but I mean, if, that obviously makes sense. If, if we sat here three years ago and somebody said Peter Capaldi will be the Doctor, would you have believed them? No, I'd have laughed at them. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you loved it because we, the, we would have thought that the BBC was addicted to going for the, the you know the younger demographic, and the Capaldi mm. was not the you know not, not the. It, right, it will right be interesting if the show does get another five or ten years to see whether Capaldi is the start of a trend or is an aberration. So how long, actually, on that note, then how long, if you think the show is going to consistently play younger, how long then would you give Capaldi in the role? Another two years. Two years? Yeah. I don't think it'll last longer than three. Mm. Well, two years would probably see him go with Moffat, I think, based yeah, on... Think? Well, I think they'll have to dig Moffat out. They'll have to blast well, him didn't, out, didn't, seriously. Didn't he say recently, though, he would do probably season 10? He signed on for season 10, but he's been yeah. allegedly talked about an eight-year plan, uh, whether that's true or not. But, I mean, apparently those words came from his mouth. You're shaking your head, Mark. I'm shaking my head going, eight years is too long to wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you get hooed out. You know, you need to you need to keep moving. You need to keep well, bringing he's, out new people. Well, he's been with the series since day one, almost. You know, with yeah, the child and whatever. And he's been working, running really hard for the last four or five yeah, years. I mean, how and, long can someone go? Yeah, so yeah. No, no one hasn't acted. I mean, look, I, like Rob, I'm probably not sufficiently up on current UK TV to pick a hot rising star who might want to do it. But... Was a guy who played Q out of uh, Skyfall? Ben Wisher? Is it Ben? Yeah, Ben Wisher. Yeah. Wish- like Wish- Llewellyn, he's dead. <laughs> ben Wisher. Hello, Desmond, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ben. Ben Wisher. Yeah, I, I could see that. It would have been a mistake for him uh, to, you know, like with Matt Smith and Ben Wisher, would have been a vast mistake. But with the Capaldi in the middle, they might go back to that sort of mm. foppish. Or was it? What's the other guy who played? It was in the Theory of Everything. Eddie Red- Eddie Redmayne. Redmayne. Yeah, I, I think Eddie Redmayne's winning far too many Oscars in Hollywood to go and yeah. do a, a BBC Idris Elba, Luther himself. I, I well, Idris Elba five years ago I think would have been perfect. Mm. I think he's pulling now. Oscar Academy Award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it'll be interesting. I would have said. I would have. Thank you for laughing in the background. I would have said Idris Elba as well, but I mean. The only uh, stuff that I've seen from him has been Luther, which is very dark. And if they were going to have him to do that sort of thing, the series would turn into something that it was completely... It would just go down a really different path. All all I want is as long as it's not a woman, I'm fine. A woman and someone over 45. I don't want anyone younger than 45 or a female. I'm sorry. I'll I'll, I'll put five bucks on the table. Mm. But if Moffat's still there in three years and cast the next Doctor, it'll be Julia Swahala. I'm out the door then. Sorry. 
You would, you, you would, a, you, I will Helen not tolerate. I'll say it now. I will not tolerate a series where the lead is a woman. So so even, not, even if it was Julia Swahala, you wouldn't uh, even turn in for one episode. I will watch Julia Swahala for Absolutely Fabulous and Press Gang. I think she would be an appalling choice for the Doctor. Yeah. I've got my five bucks on the table, and it's not on record. No offense, and you're I'm not gonna, everyone's going to take offense. Any woman in the role won't work because the the, the lead actor is a male. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's the thing. I mean, like like certain cultural figures are just. Men. I mean, let's face it, Sherlock Holmes is male. Santa is male. James Bond. James Bond has always been male. I mean, I think you could make probably a, a, a quite an intriguing Doctor Who series or a Doctor Who-like series with a female lead. You know, imagine giving Lala Well, Romana her own series back around season 18. But if you had K-9 and company starring Lala Ward and Adventures in E-Space with Birok. Look, look, I... I, I <laughs> Birok. Birok. I oh my goodness I I, I, I don't <laughs> I don't disagree with what you're saying, Rob and Richard. Um, you're right; it would be a leap probably too far for me, but I think it's a leap that Moffat would love to take. I will at least give Julia Swahala an episode to see what it's like, but it would probably end up being too big a difference. Is that why we well. didn't like Missy? Is it because no, I didn't like Missy because she was badly written and badly that, acted, and it was a really really bad story. Do we have? Again, comes down to that conceived idea of the master is a male. Yes. And we didn't couldn't get our heads around that he was now a female. That that would look. We would be lying to ourselves if mm. we didn't say that was a part of it. Mm. But the fact that it was an appallingly bad story, she had appallingly bad lines, and I don't think delivered them particularly well. And, and was a regurgitation. Like I know. I do not believe that Moffat writes every female character the same. That is completely and utterly nonsense. However, he does have a particular archetype of a female character that continues to come along, whether it's um, River Song, that crazy lady with the eye patch, the crazy lady on the space station, and the last Matt Smith one, and, and Missy. They were the same sort of protagonist female character. So I was bored with that character. With the fact that she was a regeneration of the Master was kind of irrelevant because it was the same one of those archetypes again mm. in a really, really bad story. And at the end of a season that I really enjoyed, season eight, to have a bad character that we'd seen before, it, it was Moffat does, Moffat goes back to the well, that whole story, including the characterisation of Missy, and that's why I didn't like her. So she's in the first two episodes of series nine, you're going to give it another go? I will wait until I hear the opinion of my friends on those episodes before I go and watch those two. Because I'm, I'm sorry, I really, really did not like Death in Heaven, and I really did not like that character. And that's okay. Doesn't I don't have to like every episode, so I'll wait until mm. another thing. So, so if they're all two-parters, and she's in the first two-part, and don't forget, they are in the um, one of the other two-parters, the Sex Fiend trio. So that's really going to give you, what, six episodes or something you can watch look, look, this it, year. It could be that he finds a really good um, story vehicle for Missy, and I'll really enjoy them. I'm very open to that, but I'm going to wait for opinions rather than just going and be annoyed. In between topics, uh, Dave had a revelation, uh, and I think I think it involves Star Trek. Dave, is that correct? I suddenly realised that I and maybe others are in danger of becoming something that I didn't like back in the day, because I can remember uh, back during the high or the, the big hiatus after the series finished in '89. One of the shows I did get into in quite a way was Star Trek. I watched and enjoyed all of Next Gen. I I loved Deep Space Nine and actually was important in the videos. Voyager not so much. I quite liked Enterprise until they chickened out and went generic. 
But I can remember talking to you know the the older classic fans of Star Trek, and I'd say, and I'll tell them that oh, I'm really enjoying the new Star Trek series. And they'll say, well, what do you think of the classic? And I'd say, look, I think there's ten really good episodes, and the rest of it is actually really, really bad. It 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 looks bad. The stories are just so of their time. They've aged really badly. And frankly, outside of the the, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy characters, the characters aren't that interesting anyway. And and these fans would look at me and say, well, you are not a real Trek fan. If you do not like Kirk and the classics, then you know you're not a real Trek fan. You're a Johnny Come Lately. So when I hear people say that they like the new series of Doctor Who but have no interest in the old one. I must admit my gut instinct to say, well, hang on, you're not really a Doctor Who fan. And then I remember what I went through, and I want, you know, I have to think we have to all be careful we don't become something we didn't like in the past. And it's just, it was just a bit of a revelation to me that, you know, there is a place for fans of the classic series, but we need to move out of the way sometimes and just let the new fans do what they do. Bizarre and strange as it is to some of us. I think that was the thing, though, with, in my experiences with fandom with Doctor Who. Um, having been around Trek fandom as well on, on the committee of a, one of the Trek clubs for a while, that the, when the new series broke, the classic series fans were still there, but a lot of the older classic series fans sort of disappeared back into the woodwork if they didn't really hadn't embraced Next Gen. Um, they weren't really around, whereas Doctor Who probably never really had that sort of generational handover. Um, the people who were around the club maybe because it was Doctor Who or just a lot of them just fell in love with the new series and it's Doctor Who and it's great and it's back mm. on and we don't care. So you sort of have these older fans who really enjoy the new series and then you have just the ones who just like the new series. You don't sort of have those old crusty fans unless, <laughs> other than us <laughs> who, who are around the club who really only like the classic stuff. No, they they seem to move, but but they do come together at some of the big commercial conventions, mm. and you know you just need to be. I think it's just something to sort of be aware of that there is a whole new generation now that, that is making Doctor Who what it is. Yeah, you went and saw Matt Smith when he was here a couple of weeks ago. I did. What was what were your impressions? What was the demographic there like? Eighty percent kids and young youngsters, uh, younger than myself, obviously, and twenty percent of us old farts. So like thirty five to so fifty five, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, and were they there mainly, the older ones mainly there? Because I know a couple of other people who went, and they really seem to be more, as I could say, I've met Matt Smith and got his autograph. It's another doctor yeah, to tick off the yeah, list. that's it. Is that why particularly the older ones were there, do you think? Probably, yes. That's yeah. the same reason I was. was where, I mean, I think everybody who went had the same uh, idea in mind. Because really, there's nothing, else, there's nothing else there to do. Apart from meet Matt Smith, listen yeah. to him speak, and get something signed. There was nothing else to do on that day. Okay. Other than listen to the other two guests. Again, I went to listen, <laughs> <laughs> I went to, listen to Matt Smith. Uh, Karen and, and Alex were entertaining, but I got more out of seeing Matt. It's another doctor off my list, yes. yes. Um, just on that, with, with conventions, you know, with the classic series actors, I mean, a, a lot of them, it's almost like a travelling troupe. It used to be, anyway, that they would go from convention yeah. to convention. You'd see the same faces and all that sort of thing. Mm. And that might be part of the reason why Davison and Baker and McCoy were willing to come back to Doctor Who via Big Finish because they'd sort of, you know, they'd had that, had that relationship. Do you think now that conventions are a more uh, commercial experience that someone like Matt Smith um, would be willing to come back to the show? See, I, I must admit, just to jump in there, see, I've had the impression, and 
with Matt Smith that he isn't really a fan. Well, it's not like, say, David Tennant, who's mm. actually a fan of the show fan, fan, yeah. and wants to be you know part of the, the whole thing. Mm. For Matt Smith, I mean, look, he obviously liked it. He had a really good time doing it and whatever, but it's just a job. I, that's the from having seen him interviewed and whatever over the years. That's the strong impression I've got with him. And you can say that's definitely the case with Christopher Eccleston. Uh, most definitely. <laughs> so, my point about it being a well, your point is, is it? About it being I, a I suppose is it a way back into the series? I mean, when the Hollywood roles start rolling in and he's earning the five or ten million dollars, will he come back to little old Doctor Who? I wouldn't have thought so, unless unless it's one of those ones where you know they give pitch him a really good idea. It's a couple of days and he's got a window, maybe. Look, if it's let, a special, he'll come back. Yeah, yeah. It's a multi-doctor story. He'll be back. Look, he's a jobbing actor. If somebody says we've got a part for you and the window's right and the dollars are right, he'll do it. Um, if he's got a better offer in another gig, he won't do it. And you know that that goes right back to Colin Baker not appearing in what became Time of the Rony. He didn't have the window, they weren't offering enough money, so he didn't do it. They're actors. You know, even even David Tennant, as much as he well, loves that, it. With Colin, though, that was also more that they wouldn't give him a full season because he basically was denied. I mean, yeah, but, but, it, but it, was a, it was a career-based decision. He wasn't going to, just for his love of the show, rule out that period of yeah. work. Yeah. David Tennant, as much as he loves the show, would be exactly the same. If you, if you said to David Tennant, you know, do you want to take uh, three weeks off doing something else and we're going to pay you BBC wages... And he could go and do a movie. Well, of course he's going to pick the movie. He'll be a fool if he didn't pick the movie. But in this age where international travel is very cheap, production can be done much easily, editing's that much easier, there are more windows for them to do stuff. And that's why you see all these series now where you get you know, actors coming in for one episode, two episodes and disappearing. Because in the age of digital editing and digital filming, you can film like that. It's not as though you know everybody in the film goes away for six months and they're locked away for six months. You can release people for days. So there's more chance to do it, but it'll be a commercial arrangement. Mm. And as long as they've got better offers, why would they do a convention? Unless I'm being really cynical. No, it's the dollar. It's the dollar. It's the dollar. We can all agree. I mean, you know, Sylvester McCoy wasn't turning down Lord of the Rings so he could do extra Doctor Who conventions. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. No, he just did them out here instead. Yeah, he was fitting him in, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah, he was fitting him in. Well, it would have been hard because he had such an integral role to that film. You know, He would have been on every scene. Especially the third one. Yeah, I was asleep by the end of that one. So it's been a really interesting chat this evening, fellas. And just to wrap it up, uh, I think we'll talk about what we've been watching. Uh, Let's begin with Mark. I've just finished watching... The first season of Blake Seven. Classic, classic show. Classic show. Right. Classic yes. show. Yes, classic show. Couldn't I, get more BBC 70s than that, could you? You could not. Moonbase uh, 3? Yeah. No. But Blake Seven's actually good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Terence, if you're listening. Uh, well, even Terence Dix doesn't think Moonbase no, 3 is any good. Well, I've actually got a Moonbase 3 story. Just, sorry, just to jump in. When, um, when I, uh, in the late 90s, when I sold off a lot of my VHS tapes... Mm. Um, I actually had the three Moonbase three tapes and I sold them to this lady and she was like, oh, I want to grab them, I want to grab them, I've never seen them, I want to grab them. And about a week later, I got this letter going, was there anyone else who was interested in these? Because <laughs> 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 I want to sell them on. Yeah. I mean, I have the VHS, which I've never watched, so that's money down the drain. Is it, what is Moonbase three like? Is it just very slow? Yes. It's pedestrian. It's one, it, yeah, it's, it, I think Terence Dick summed it up as saying it was too soapy for hardcore sci-fi fans and too sci-fi scenario for 
mm. soapy fan. It, it, mm. it has... There are a couple... It deals very much because there's no alien, no nothing in it. It's just basically the pressures and the issues that a community living on the moon would have to deal with. So they've never got enough money. Um, they can't get... You know, they've got no resources. So um, the, the Moon Grace crew in an exciting episode with the tax accountant. <laughs> Um, well, Sunmakers. Yeah. <laughs> six six <laughs> episodes. That's exactly right. So to, today the, the commander balances the budget. <laughs> <laughs> so of course you have these things, plus these danger in space. So there, there's a couple of. I, I think there are a couple. There are a couple of quite good episodes. But the last one's okay. The last one with Michael Goff in it is not bad. The first one's all right because it sets up the scenario and how they all have to work together. But the the middle ones are, are quite pedestrian. Um, particularly the, the third and fourth ones, they are quite dire. I, I find it very like um, Terra Nation Survivors. The the ones where... Th- there are some good episodes in there, but it's very slow going in the middle. There's just not a lot is it, um, happening. Is it similar to the uh, Chris Boucher series about the... Space oh, Star Cops. Star Cops. Is, is there a sort of similar vibe or other than the setting? Yeah, to a point. I mean, Star Cops is a bit of a... I haven't watched Star Cops for a while, but Star Cops is a bit of a slow burn. You, you've really got to invest some time in Star Cops before you really get a payoff. Yeah, that's fair. Because it's a lot of it. The first... Most of the first... He's just, he's just setting up the characters and setting up the situation. Because admittedly, at the, when it starts, they're, they're just a team of... Like, they're no good, basically. And, and they develop as a team across the... Um, across the course of the series so once you get into the later ones they're, they're not bad but it's a very slow burn how many episodes? Uh, two, two series of 13, 13 or something yeah. I think oh that much? yeah oh, okay. um, I think so yeah. it's uh, yeah uh, no it, it requires you to invest a lot of time in it does that have a screen over here? I don't think so. I, I only saw it on, I only saw it on import there. so Mark you're sitting with Rich and I who are both big Blake 7 fans coming into it how have you found it? A lot of fun, actually. Uh, Avon, in particular, is a fantastic character. I'm not convinced Terry Nation wrote every line of his. I don't think Terry Nation wrote any lines of his. No, there, there, are, there are definitely the stories of um, yes. Chris Boucher and Paul Darrow going down the pub afterwards and just working out really cool lines. Certainly. Or, and they, yeah. apparently they used to both watch, they're big fans of Western, so they'd watch the Sunday Night Western, and then <laughs> Paul Darrow would get a call from Chris Boucher going, hey, did you see that line he had when he shot the guy? That would be a good Avon line. Right. So there were, there were lots of that sort of stuff yeah. going on. Great fun series, actually. Uh Bounty was a bit bizarre. That, that bounty is uh, one of the two or three worst in the whole world. Yeah, game. politically correct does not cover it, especially <laughs> the last five to ten minutes of it, oh, where no, uh, that, Monty that... Python Bandit turned up, and uh, yes. They're, they're space, yes, space pirates in Arabian costumes. Space yeah. Arabs. Yeah, space <laughs> Arabs, if you want to. Yeah. Arabs you, you said it. It was, yeah. it was borderline politically correct for the 70s. It's not appropriate. No. But it's not even a good script. It's not like no. it's... Politically correct no. and, a, and a good script. It's a bad script. Yeah, Jewel reminded me too much of Brain of Morbius. Stuck on that calm-like planet and they had the, that old lady and the young girl doing mumbo-jumbo to each other. But look, definitely... Is uh, that what they're calling it now? Yeah, it's just, just <laughs> gobbledygook. I feel like I'm talking now. But yeah, great fun series. I'm looking forward to watching uh, series two. But I also watched Going Clear, the documentary on Scientology. Yeah, and um, have you converted yet? Does it, <laughs> no, does it live up to its reputation? It, well, put it this way. If you're going to do a documentary and the opposing uh, viewpoint, i.e. Scientology, doesn't want to participate, it's going to be a one-sided story ever so slightly. So uh, that's my recommendation not to do if you're going to do a documentary like that. And also watch Kurt Cobain documentary Montage of Heck, 
really don't watch that if you're feeling a bit blue or, or, <laughs> or you too will have your brains on the wall <laughs> very shortly yeah look it was a very well done documentary but uh, yeah it's quite dark a bit like Kurt himself now I'm going to go and read Preacher <laughs> hello Garth if you're listening <laughs> What about you, Richard? What have you been watching? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I have actually watched some Doctor Who in amongst some of my mm. other things. Not season eight, though. No, no, no. no. I watched... Uh, well, if, if we do Doctor Who, I've watched um, a few Tom Bakers recently. Um, I did Pyramids of Mars, and I did uh, Horror of Fang Rock. Oh, you and yes. Rock, mate. You and yes. Rock. Yes, yes. I love Horror of Fang Rock. Rock. I really do. The Rock. Welcome to the Rock. Template Doctor Who. Mm. Um, yes, I also have watched uh, The Power of Kroll, and I watched... Uh, Horns of Nymon. Oh, and Stones of Blood. And no, uh, there's a factory up the road that's called Megara. There is. It's past the Siemens factory. Anyway, um, I that on the way here. Yeah. So look, um, Pyramids of Mars. Well, I talked about that earlier. That I always adored Pyramids of Mars because it's just one that made me fan. I must admit, Horror Fang Rock. I think is just. I'm with you. I think that is an awesome story. Top ten. Yes, most definitely. Ooh. It'd be in my top ten. It'd be in my top twenty. Done about top ten. Um. I have to be honest and say I didn't get a lot out of the Stones of Blood. I just, I, I don't know. That just didn't really work for me. Paracroll was stupid, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's fair. Because, look, I mean, look, it's guys in green paint stomping around in a, in a swamp. But <laughs> what, what more do you want, Richard? Well, Tom is clearly having a whale of a time making it. And it's got Philip Maddock in it, so that's pretty good too. Mm, um, and and he, off, he offsets John Leeson. Who's oh. about as animated as K-9. Yeah, that, that's really not a very good he was in Blake 7 too, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, he, he was, was in twice. Mission of Destiny twice. and in... one of the ones you haven't seen yet. Yeah, yeah he's great. Um, yeah, until you see him in Gambit, he's uh, very good in that, actually. Okay. And uh, Horns of Diamond, that was... Um, that, again, look, it's a stupid story, but it's a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, it's a great story for Lyle Ward. Hmm. Yes. Um, and look, it's got, you know, stupid stuff in it, like Tom hugging K-9 and whatever, but then the TARDIS making the stupid boing noises. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, I actually think, look, again, you can watch it and just, just have fun playing along with it. You can, and some of the Douglas Adams obviously insert lines like, um, he lives in the power complex. That fits. Yeah. That, that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's a, you know, this wonderful little line in there. There's some gems in that story, yeah. but it is... Um, I watched Frontios. I forgot. I oh, did Frontios. you? Yes. Oh, and after the Davison episode oh, cast we did, uh, I, I sat down and watched Frontios and thoroughly enjoyed watching it again. It's a good story. That it one. is a good story and the music's quite effective as well. Um, the ending of it is a bit Scooby-Doo where they all sort of <laughs> look at each other and <laughs> they're going away. Yeah, it's a bit crap. But yeah, great story. I guess uh, away from Doctor Who, well, I've watched, um, I think Rob's been watching, I've watched, uh, rewatched some of Callum. I'm slowly mm. working my way back through them again. That's a great series. I love Callum. Maybe Phil's found some more of those. Oh, that that I must admit actually would, would really excite me. But uh, mm. I, I must admit that's look. It's it's obviously a bit dated now because it's all you know reads under beds and those crazy East Germans. But um, better than what we currently got. The threats that we had—they're <laughs> <laughs> slightly more apocalyptic. But uh... yeah, but uh, no, that that is a, an awesome series. Um, I've just uh, just about oh, just going into the colour ones. No, that, that's a great show. Um, I've also started rewatching Robin of Sherwood. Oh. Um, yeah, if anyone... Uh, that's the 80s. That's the yeah. 80s one with Michael Pride. Yeah. Do you know, I've never watched it. Really? I've never watched no, it. Can likewise. I borrow it Yeah. After Blake 7, it's the next on the list. No, it's it's great. I mean, I haven't seen them since... Or it wouldn't have been since they were on TV here in the mid-80s. So it'd be, what, 30 years Who ago? Who screened them here in Australia? Uh, seven, seven, I think. Yeah, really? seven, I think. Okay. I, I don't. I, I must be. I, I think I'd stop watching by the Jason Connery ones, but because um, there's two seasons of Michael Pride and then there's a, a third series with um, 
uh, Jason Connery. I remember reading the book by Richard Carpenter. Which That's right, I just read another book. Richard Carpenter series. Very good. Very uh, good. Yeah, of Cat Weasel fame. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, and Dick Turpin. And Why also, yes, he did. Dick, yes, that's right. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's actually yeah. That is a bit of a sad story, but um, yes, that's yes. right. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, Richard, and he also did uh, the first lot of the Scarlet Pimpernel, the Richard E. Grant. Oh, that was great. That too. yeah, he, wrote, yeah. he did the first season of that. So, yeah. uh, and, and amongst his other uh, credits, no, Robin Sherwood. It's um, mystical. Uh, yeah, it is. It's it's, um, it's a bit eighties new age. It is a little bit. I mean, it's a bit. I um, mean, it's got sort of the music by by Clannard or whatever, no. and that's. Um, oh, sail away. No, it's Enya. No, that's Enya. Close, close, Yeah, Irish songstress Enya. <laughs> but uh, no, look, it, it's good. I mean, it's it's a little formulaic because there's only so because it, it's set up around Robin and his merry men, and obviously you've got the, the sheriff who, let's face it, he's probably the best character in it. Um, he's, that's Nicholas Grace. He's awesome, Nicholas Grace. Well, villains always get the best role. They do. And, and he, Nicholas Grace playing a sheriff. Yeah, he's a sheriff in Nottingham. I, I can't imagine what that would be like. Great, actually. He is he is awesome as a sheriff in Nottingham. He's a very good actor, but I just can't imagine him yeah, being a sheriff. Yeah, very acerbic. Everything he does. Yeah, is well, acerbic. it is. But um, it, it's sort of let down a bit because his underling guy, Gisborne, he's sort of the idiot character. And it, it sort of becomes very much how, how can we um, you know, humiliate Guy Gisborne this week? Pretty much, you know, the sheriff's got this latest crazy scheme, and he sends his henchman, who's obviously incompetent, out to, to do it. And and how can Robin and his men humiliate him? As I said this week, but it's it's got a lot of charm to it. I mean, it's it's an interesting spin because the the sheriff is actually quite a. I mean, he's obviously a bit of a prick, but he, he's actually quite a cool character and really well done. I mean, it's not quite that the was the thing Russell Crowe wanted to do, you know, the um, Nottingham, whatever it was, where the sheriff was the good guy. Um, that was one of the film treatments he wanted to do. Rusty's been in the beer again, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, which eventually became whatever the, the movie they did a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Moses um, oh, no, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. It was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then there was that terrible series they did a few years ago as well, which I didn't get a lot out of. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that was all right. Keith around, Allen was... Oh, run around leather coat. It was no made Marion and a Mary Mary. <laughs> no, that's that, Well, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm actually quite enjoying it. I'm, and yes, I'll lend them to you when I finish. Bless you. Welcome to the lending uh, DVD episode of 42 to Doomsday. Yeah. Just got like the 90s all over again. Got any other requests? I've also watched some of La Linea recently, if anyone remembers that. I found a DVD of that. Also by Tanner? No, <laughs> no, La Linea. It was on, uh, those of you who are watching Doctor Who here in the 70s, it was a little thing, one of those little five-minute shorts they used to put in between Doctor Who and the news. And it's the Italian little guy, it's a little white line that resolves into an image of a bloke, and he, he does little two-dimensional adventures. You'd know it if you saw it. Yeah, the description sounds <coughs> vaguely familiar. But... I think we've got uh, "Come and Get It" Peter Russell Clark. G'day, g'day. Yeah, well, I remember that. Yeah, people always go to him. Hey, Peter, where's the genie? Mate, I'll tell you where the fucking cheese is. I went to his restaurant one. Still selling his books in 1984. And the thing is, if you go on YouTube, actually, for anyone listening, go on YouTube and just Google Peter Russell Clark "Come and Get It" because it's all—it's not episodes; it's all outtakes. Oh, really? oh yeah, and it's him just he swears like yeah. a trooper. Not, not, not safe for work with the children. Yeah, it's not, so, not safe for work or, or home if you have children. <laughs> Keep talking and look at it now. You're going to have a little one. Let's play it into the microphone. <laughs> the, 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 the bizarre things that they showed between Doctor Who and the 7pm news in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd actually, I mean, that was a. Remember, we did a panel on that at one of the, the club things. If you remember, we like did. The, there was some extraordinary stuff. Like on there. Danger Mouse and yeah, Roger Danger Ramjet. Mouse. Yeah, Roger Ramjet. Um, and they used to show them those little take five things that were just uh, they're just little music videos. Oh yes. And little yeah. performances and music videos. Yeah, that's right. 
And they used to say stuff like the Wombles and Captain Pugwash. They used to play... Um, who's that band? Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. The, that instrumental one where they got the marching band. Oh, Task. Yeah, yeah, ABC would periodically just play that at random mm. in between shows. Just... They also had a video clip of um, Going Home from... Um... Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler that they used also to show. Also starring Peter Capaldi. Yes, first film. Do you guys remember that? They were showing the five yes. minutes of film. They just showed going, yeah. the, the going yes, over Yes, that's video. right. Yeah. They'd also yeah, show... Yeah. Um, yeah, they had little clips. I mean, they used to do... Um, I don't think some of the other ones they used to screen. There was... Uh, oh, no, Dr. Snuggles was a full-length one. No, Dr. Snuggles was... Five minutes, Five minutes, it? but they also showed it as in omnibus format. I was going to say, because Dr. Snuggles... I remember Dr. Snuggles being a longer one. No, it was originally five minutes, but the ABC often yeah. showed it in omnibus format. Okay. There you go. You're flicking a deep dive into really obscure <laughs> stuff there. <Yeah. laughs> anyway, oh, the red and the blue? Oh, red and the blue, I remember that. No, yep. I don't remember that one. Yeah, there were the two balls <laughs> of plasticine. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know what it was called, but yeah, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah, the okay. two coloured balls yeah. of plasticine. Yeah. We, had, we had quality TV in Australia. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know listen to them actually years ago. Oh, On the Road with Evan Green, remember oh, that? Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah, this is how you... Uh, I was remember getting out of a... When your car gets bogged, but you're inside mats under yep. the tower. Yep. That last five minutes of obscure Australian TV representations is obviously our revenge on some of the UK podcasts that do the same to us in reverse. Exactly. Um, but, Rob, what have you been watching? Do you remember Home? Just what we were there. Did you not listen to us? <laughs> okay, <laughs> we talked about it. I know, but people want to... I do. Oh, yes, I do remember. All right, I'm sorry. What's home? That wasn't your podcast. That was bloody JR's one. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. Hello, JR, if you're listening. Home, home, home on, on the, the other side. The yeah, no, one to the, the kids, the people, in, the kids in the in the orphanage or the kids' home. Don't remember that. Yeah, it was on six o'clock. Was, I, uh, I'm I'm sure. I saw it. I'm sure I'd say it. Yeah, it was, after, it, was after, yeah, it was around the same time. It was shortly after Sweet and Sour. Yeah, I'm in control. That's a great show. That. Uh, what have I been watching? Um, yeah, sorry, Rob. So what have been, you been watching? I've been powering through uh, the X Files. I'm now Ooh. into early series two, season two. That's actually improved. The series one is is, is very up and down. They're, they're, obviously, they're finding their way and, and all that sort of thing. And some of the conspiracy stuff is quite good, but some of the more standalone episodes are not quite as good. But I think now that they're getting into series two or season two, and um, Gillian Anderson uh, at that point was very heavily pregnant and it's pretty obvious uh, and then she goes and has the baby and vanishes for a couple of well, actually I think three or four episodes so Mulder is paired with you know a variety of different people but um, I'm really look, looking forward to seeing it because at about that point the series began to take off and the, and the viewing figures were through the roof and uh, it became part of that early 90s zeitgeist with conspiracy theories and, and, and all that sort of thing so um, I'm, I've been watching that. I've watched a couple of movies for this um, site that I review: American Sniper and Foxcatcher. Impulse Gamer. Yeah, that one. And can I just ask if you got anything out of Foxcatcher at all? It's a very, very slow movie. I enjoyed it. I agree with your assessment, but not your conclusion. Okay. But is it, I, I just thought it completely failed to deliver on its promise. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think as a study of three very different men, it's interesting. It, it is, but I just would have liked some sort of payoff for it. I just think it didn't go anywhere. Did, yeah. did, did, well, it didn't, didn't do what I thought it could have. But mm. No, fair especially, especially for all the Oscar hype it had. Okay. No, fair enough. Fair enough. But the TV, that I've, TV series that I've been watching is probably one that no one has ever heard of uh, called Fortitude. There was a 12 or, th- 12 or 13 episodes that... You're all shaking your heads. <gasps> no, no. <laughs> um, British, but uh, with... Well, it was... Eccleston's a, in it. 
Eccleston's in it. Yes. Uh, Stanley Tucci, who you'd recognise if you saw him. Yeah, no, uh, Michael Gambon is in it, and yeah. a number of Scandinavian type actors. Um, set in. Uh, oh, I've seen that. That's the one set in Alaska or wherever it is. Is that the one? No, but it is. It's in, in, in northern climes. Yes, it's set. Uh, I think it's a, a territory administered by Norway or something like that. So it's on an island. It's uh, it's very very remote. It's a murder mystery, come thriller, come horror mashup. It's really really good. The acting is really good. The mystery of what's going on in the background whilst the murder mystery is being okay. uh, resolved is uh, if you like your horror genre, remote location, icebound, a bit like the thing, uh, the eighty two movie, the thing. Uh, well worth investing uh, it's out on DVD now because I've reviewed it uh, so I know that um, really really good really really good yeah I, I saw that I haven't watched it but yeah I do know the one you're talking about yeah I'll, um, I've got the DVDs the review DVDs at home so if anyone wants to borrow yeah alright Richard it sounds okay. like that film was it Seven Days and Nights yeah not at all not at all no not at all oh is that that one with the vampire one yeah the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, yeah 30 uh, days of night that's it yeah that's it well uh, that's in the sense though. that it's isolated and there's lots of snow yes but in other sense no. <laughs> so it's sort of like that but with no vampires it's it seems to do I mean Fortitude could very easily easily have been filmed as a really pulpy you know hack Hackathon, yeah, but it's the location shooting is beautiful. Um, the acting is really good. The mystery of, you know, who did what, is effectively built up over the, you know, I think it's twelve or thirteen episodes. Uh, I will say that the ending is a bit rushed and slightly uh, doesn't sort of reach the level that it could have. And how on earth they're going to spin it off into a second season, which they're doing, I'm not quite sure. But uh, Fortitude again, it's the TV series that most people have not heard of at all and I think it's worth everyone's while having a look at alright Dave please uh, well, this one out yeah well as all the uh, current US series that I watch are on summer hiatus I've been watching some Doctor Who um, recently a, another podcast did a bit of a talk about the Sea Devils and I realised I hadn't seen that for quite a few years and I put it on and absolutely enjoyed it I loved it found it very very easy to watch over six episodes so then went on to the Curse of Peladon loved that even more I think that's just brilliant uh, Death to the Daleks uh, invasion of the Dinosaurs, Frontier in Space, I really enjoyed, Planet of the Daleks. Look, it's got some flaws, but it's it's quite watchable. Unfortunately, this morning, I then decided that I will give Monster of Peladon another go. Mm. <laughs> um, in the same way that Robots of Death is a pretty good script that is brought to classic heights with great directing and acting and set design, Monster of Peladon is a not awful but not great script that is plumbing new depths with terrible acting, terrible design, just cheap, nasty. And even John Pertwee, who I'm a big fan of... He's phoning it in, isn't he? Yeah, look, he is. And I think that the reality of his his time at the end of the show is coming up. He hasn't got the excitement of Planet of the Spiders. Well, did, he, did he announce his... He yeah, did. Mon- yes, Monster of Peladon was when it went public that, that he was leaving. Mm. Um, so, so he, that had something to do with it. Well, he probably would have got all the started getting all the letters, you know, please don't go, you're doing the wrong thing. And yeah, so look, I, I love the Purple Year. And, and, and re watching some of these ones for the first time in five or six years, they've been absolutely wonderful. They, you know, they're why I'm a Doctor Who fan. We talked right at the start, Rob, about, you know, why are we fans? Well, because you can watch Frontier in Space or Curse of Peladon again and again, and they're brilliant television. Monster of Peladon wasn't, so I might, I might, <laughs> I might move on from the Purple Year now to find something else. I actually want to re watch. Um, Elizabeth R. with uh, Glenda Jackson and Robert Hardy, but 
No, I've, I've enjoyed some Doctor Who over the last couple of weeks. So thank you everyone for downloading this uh, special extended edition of 42 to Doomsday. We'd like to extend a very special thanks to Dave and Richard for coming on tonight's show. So thanks guys, hope you enjoyed it. It's, it's been emotional. It's been great, thanks for having me back on. And uh, as we like to round out all our episodes... I've been Mark. I've been Rob. I've been Dave. And I've been Richard. Keep punching! You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. All right, so three, two... Plus, I've got to do my J&T impression. Oh, yes, I've got to do that. I do the impressions here, buddy, not you. Oh, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So what are we going to talk about again? What are we watching? My my revelation. Oh, yes, your Star Trek revelation. Um, Now, uh, in... Can can he? Oh, yeah. Well, Mark's looking astonished over there. (laughs) Let the white white ending commence. You know when he was talking about the future of the 42 to Doomsday podcast? Yes, well, that's right. You know, I think that was a subtle audition. The 42 to Doomsday, the concept, it doesn't necessarily have to involve the same thing. It's a brand now. It's a brand. (laughs) 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 You pay us franchising rights. To that young, I say, what? You just called me a bastard, didn't you? (laughs) Well, you better not have, because let me tell you, me and Rob and Dave are getting pretty sick of you. That's right. All right. Uh, Three, two, one.